Hello and welcome to the Homemade Camera Podcast. We have a very special guest today, Graham Burnett, who runs GraphLexParts.com. Is it .com, Graham? Yeah, it uh, is .com, yes. Graham uh, has a home shop, home-ish shop, and uh, instead of having 15 3D printers, he's got a bunch of milling equipment to make some really yeah. beautiful stuff. Um, he is in Duluth, Minnesota, so... You know, um, nine million miles north of every listener to this podcast. I, I have uh, to say, uh, Graham, I grew up in Minneapolis, and did um, you? yeah, I did. And I have to, I have to tell you that the thing I know about Duluth is that there is no accident that the first three letters in Duluth are dull. What do you mean so, it's dull? Graham had to dig out his Wi-Fi router this morning. It was under yeah, ten feet of yeah, snow. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. oh, it snowed. Oh uh, no, not yet. Not yet. No, not uh, yet. it'll okay. soon enough. No. Okay. I I don't know. I gather it's sort of like the Pacific Northwest without salt water, but you know. Okay, let's let's all sort of agree. But anyway, <laughs> let's let's jump into cameras. Um, Graham, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into machining and making things? We'll get into making cameras a little bit later. Um, I guess to the the principle of everything I do is is uh. I, I like to be self-sufficient um, and that's why I've, I've gone through to work to make my own shop in like where I can spend hours dedicated to lay the mill and it's it's just controlling the, the manufacturing process but that that kind of stems from just I, I was a college dropout I didn't really want to go get a normal job uh, I didn't really see myself committing all, all the time to education like that um, and at that years back when I was doing that, I was just trying to be a freelance photographer. And I was thinking, well, you can teach yourself photography. Like you don't need to go to school for this. It has its merit, you know, but, um, but so, so I took my own path with that. Uh, I ended up, um, my brother, I'm, this is so many tangents to jump around at one time, but like I started shooting film when I was 13 years old. Um, my brother, uh, gave me my first camera, which was a Minolta SRT 101. Um, and I really took to the whole manual side of things. Um, I kind of floundered over to digital for a few years um, and, and came back. But then by the time that I was uh, like dropping out of college and trying to find something, what should I do? Uh, I was looking, this is still when you could buy a uh, Fuji film or Fuji instant film for super cheap. Um, so I, I bought a, a Mamiya press and I was trying to shoot uh, FP 100 C and make a little gig off that. But life, Life works its its weird ways, and I ended up getting into graphlexes. And I like working on cameras more than I like shooting them. Um, I don't know, but that's a uh, <sighs> that's perfectly okay. Is yeah, what it is. That's perfectly okay. Yeah, and it's. I mean, I, I'm still really interested in like the fine art side of things. I just for myself, I couldn't push it into into a job of trying to make my artwork actually pay money. Whereas I like doing craftsman type things. Um, I worked full-time as a barista and uh, I, well, I managed a restaurant for a couple of years. Um, and that's the kind of thing where you, it's a hands-on craft, you're a shopkeeper, it's kind of the same essence of this. And it, it just, by extension, it's, I'm running my little shop, but instead of serving the general public, it's online niche stuff. Um, I got my start machining in high school, actually. I was really fortunate. I grew up in central Minnesota where uh, the, the normal jobs that you'd get are working for the granite company um, or welding or working in agriculture. And so I had a really great shop teacher who his father had taught my father uh, years back. So we all essentially had the same schooling of, of machining and stuff. But at 13, 14 year, years old, I was led on a full-size mill, full-size lathe, um, and kind of taught the basics. And it's one of those things where uh, it's like learning to ride a bike and you don't really forget after all the years. So um, 
this past couple of years when I started to get into like camera modification um, and I started out doing 3D printing like everyone else does. It's, it's easy for prototyping, but you start to realize like, especially when you're, you're paying for like an SLS print from like, like someone like Shapeways or, or any of the other online companies, you have this timeline that you really can't control for, for R and D um, where you, you send your, your project out, you get it back. It's off by a couple millimeters in some dimension that's not going to work for you at all. And you can't do anything, but wait another two and a half, three weeks for another prototype to come. And so I ended up, uh, I started working with, uh, we have a makerspace in town. I know Ethan, you work with your makerspace in your locale. Um, and our makerspace is a much, not unprofessional, it's just a very uh, small uh, part of Duluth. Um, we have uh, different sewing manufacturers and all these like little craftsman industries that have existed in Duluth since 1890s. Um, and it's kind of, so it, it's this great color of people and it's really cheap to be at the makerspace, but I was, my brother worked there, um, volunteered there for a, a lot of years and by extension through that, I was like, hey, can I use your milling machine if I need to get some stuff done? And it's like, yeah, yeah, go for it. It's like, do I need to take a class? And they're like, no, no, don't take class at all. It's like, oh, you're just going to let me on the bridge port. Um, and I forcibly got my brother to, to walk me through stuff so I didn't feel like I was going to kill myself on, on any of the machines. But, um, and that was a good few years back now. But I mean, now I've got a, a milling machine in the background there. And it's, it's a whole different league when you're not having to rent time on a machine and you can just dedicate all the effort that goes into it. So. <laughs> Did I go off on enough tangents there? Um, maybe <laughs> maybe half as many as we we should. Oh, no. Um, I guess my my desire for because because you guys deal with mo mostly it seems uh, medium format except for Nick's the one shooting the the, the graphlexes and stuff, but it, it's kind of a, a weird jump to go from like small small format. Um, up to like anything that's the it's more technically minded but then so the first time that i was introduced to a graphlex was uh what seven years ago now when my brother handed me this he's like it's just like your mamiya like it's just all the controls are in different spots and i'm looking at this thing like i have no idea what you're showing me right now like i don't know what any of these controls do and now i can take one of those cameras apart <laughs> in my sleep so how long did it take you to uh to suss it out how long did it take you to figure out you know, the controls are different. The film, the film lined is different, obviously. <laughs> but uh, so uh, when you were, you know, faced with this different camera, how long did it take you to figure it out? It's it's kind of one of those things where it's you figure out what you don't know personally about cameras and like what you can learn more about. I mean, it, it was some of those things where I was unaware that the camera was taking control of tension adjustment, you know, like when you wind a 35 millimeter camera, you think you're doing all of the manual things anyway, but there's 80 years of automatic development that's gone into all of these mechanics that are setting all of these things automatically running uh, all these escapements and mechanisms and stuff. Um, so it didn't take me too long. I think it's more once I finally got into the nitty gritty of caring about uh, how wrong I was shooting other formats. Um, and then I had uh, my, my biggest goal was I want to shoot FP100C on a Graflex. Um, and I got myself to that point. <laughs> but also when you you buy any camera that you're looking to modify, you end up having to learn more about it. And so I I had actually had to get a training on my brother with my brother one day, um, where I, I came into Duluth before we lived in Duluth. 
and he spent uh, like five, six hours with me at the makerspace. We tore the camera apart, put it back together. And that was one thing when you have someone else's hands showing you what to do. <clears throat> and then there's the whole or ordeal played over by myself. It takes two or three times as long when I'm sitting there by myself with screwdrivers trying to not break things. Um, yeah, and you need I, the big tray to catch all the little bits. And I also find it's a great idea to take a lot of photographs so that you can find your way back out with the breadcrumbs <laughs> when you're oh, trying entirely. to put it back together. Yeah. And that's actually, that's that's something that I've started to do now with, uh, it, it, it's something that you do out of survival for yourself at the start of like, I don't know how is this going to go back together, but you, you end up realizing like there's a bunch of cameras that I have where part of what I pride myself on at this point is that I can kind of just get any camera into my shop as long as it's got a large format focal plane shutter might have mirror linkage. It's not too small. Um, there's a few requirements, but most of these designs I learned I can work on. And a big part of that is before you start taking things apart, you take a bunch of photos of it. So, you know, once you popped a certain escapement off and you drop the entire gear set, <laughs> which way do these go? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, yeah. There's, there's every, times every where, step. Yeah. I find um, it. You, if I don't do every step, I sometimes can't find my way back. It's uh, yeah. And then there's, there's that little sound and I just yesterday had, have a new ancient Russian lens and I took it out of the packaging and I felt the tiny screw drop out <laughs> and caught it all completely blind and found the little hole and put it right back in. Because... <laughs> well, this is actually uh, yesterday I was I was because part of it being your own repair technician and then being a machine operator by extension, you are your own machine repair technician then. So doing just certain normal service on my, my lathe and stuff, I'm going through everything, oiling up every little spot, trying to find, because that's especially when you're working with machine tools that run for hours and hours, the spots that you don't normally oil are the ones that end up biting you in the butt. Um, things that wear themselves out after a couple thousand hours of being around. Same with cameras. Um, no, I'm, I'm in the middle of like pulling little oiler uh, grub screws out and I get one out and I forgot that uh, I was using a magnetized screwdriver and I didn't realize it wasn't a non-ferrous screw and it just popped right out and I spent about an hour looking for it. And now I'm at the point of, okay, I'm just going to have to cut another grub, which on the lathe, I can just make myself another grub screw, but it's how much effort you want to Yeah, 10 hours. <laughs> I'd rather cut uh, a bolt like this on a lathe than a grub screw. It's, uh, I t cutting tiny things is fun. Um, I don't know. That's, you. Well, but I've, I've also said this in the past. I, there's, it's, I don't like working on tiny cameras. It, it, there's a point where things are just too small for my hands. Um, yeah, or eyes or my tremor and all the rest of it. There, there, is, um, there is something wonderful about the Graflex combination of materials, the way they combine metal and wood. You, it, it suits me. I'm a blacksmith and a, and a carpenter, essentially. And that's just what you're doing with a Graflex. You're doing a lot of that kind of metalwork and carpentry. It's, and it's amazing how well they figured stuff out. It, those some of those teeny tiny screws that have held for 50 60 years and are still good when you take them out put them back in They they really thought that through it was their their whole especially when it comes to i mean i think this can can extend over to the whole just family of of that world of large format box cameras that were built on a box of wood before everything went to composites and just metal <clears throat> i mean this is everything pre-1950 when aluminum was still considered an exotic metal um yeah you know but uh, especially with, with Graflex is that you have the combination of there, there's so many things that can be broken and can be readily fixed by just the user. It doesn't need to go off to a repair tech. It's not like um, 
was it like the Pentax 67 where uh, it has the the focusing chain and stuff that'll break where you might be able to get into the camera to do it, but you're not going to have any of the parts. You're not going to be able to remedy the situation at all. And, and with Graflex, one of the most common problems is stripped out screw holes, which you can fix with either super glue or wood glue, mm -hmm. um, which are $2 fixes. Yeah. And the screws you can buy off the internet still. Um, <laughs> yep. And uh, you pretty much just need flathead screwdrivers. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I know we're, we're going to go way down the wormhole into some of your projects. And I'm sure Nick has a million questions about, uh, and you guys could probably talk for 10 days about how these things work and things you might build based upon them. But I kind of want to know, like, you have probably some um, real mechanical abilities that are natural or, or picked up from other things, right? And and you've figured out how to work on cameras. But I think the reason, Graham, while, why you were particularly good and knowledgeable about this is for some reason, some crazy reason, you started a business around uh, fixing and, and making repair parts for these old cameras, which we haven't really talked about. I, I wonder sort of, how you got into um, making repair parts and repairing cameras sort of professionally before we get down into the nitty gritty of, of cameras in particular. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it, it did start out with, I was trying to, it, it, which like a lot of these hobbies, it's, it's something that kind of just spirals out of control, but in a good way. Um, so it started with, uh, I had gone from trying to shoot uh, FP100C film on a Mamiya Press, I really got sick of using a rangefinder. I have this, like, I really don't like TLRs, and I, I it's it's the parallax of, of a rangefinder. I just don't like, especially with a Mamiya Press, the RF is so far away from the shooting lens that when you're close enough up to something trying to do a portrait, it's totally crossed. So my next inclination was, okay, I need a, a large format SLR, a single lens reflex camera, where I am looking down into the camera and out the exact lens that I'm shooting on. And so I transitioned to uh, first graphics I got was a, a three by four series D, um, just cute little SLR. Um, cute little, cute little kind of relative. Little in my world. When when, uh, when the big cameras in my world are about the size of a small child, uh, you consider a three by four camera to be little. Um, no, I so I I started out with it was a little project, I, and this was what was I trying to do in town. I think, yeah, I was trying to freelance when we moved to Duluth, um, do little social media stuff, freelancing. It wasn't really working out. No one was paying me. I was ended up having to get, it's like, okay, I'm going to have to get another job to hold me over for something to do whatever. And I ended up uh, working for one of the, the big manufacturers in town doing like leather work and, and real hands-on craftsmanship. Um, and you get really sick of factory work pretty quick. Um, and in my own hobby time, I was trying to uh, transition from EMEA to Graphlex and I, I 3D printed myself on, uh, what was it on? Oh, a little, an old MakerBot. <laughs> those, those tiny, crappy little slow printers. Um, and so I, I printed my first uh, little 3x4 adapter, which I have a version of. Now, this is only half of it, but this is this is the shape. It's it's a large, because the back of, of, a, of a Graphlex camera has a big rotation ring. That is just a, a big circle that's got a bolt pattern on it, and then this rotates. Um, okay, this, and 
Well, and and for our listeners and people who aren't yes. able to watch, it's a it's a rectangle. Four is it four by five? Yeah. It's bigger than four by five, right? It's the the old FP one hundred C holders. So so this is a a Fuji holder off of a like a passport camera. Um, okay. So it's like like passport photos where they take four on on one picture, and it's so I I ripped the back off, and they all have a pretty usual back. You're making a rectangle. Its shape is a rectangle. It's got a couple screw holes. And what I'm fitting it onto is a circular bolt pattern on the back of the camera. And there's some niches that go into it. Technically, it can't rotate unless you pull it off the camera. That's a whole other thing. Um, but the idea is you're making a, a, a three by four. You're taking a full three by four Polaroid image on the on the back. And it's a little obtuse. Um, they're, they're kind of big. But not to go off on that, uh, what I so I prototyped this first one out of just FDM printing. Um, uh, a long time ago, and I was like, oh, it, it, proof of concept worked. Uh, it, it was taking some pictures. I managed to calibrate the camera to work right. And then because of the communities I was involved with online, everyone else uh, figured out that I was making a Polaroid adapter. And this is when you could still buy it for $10 a pack. So everyone's like, I want one of these now. It's like, sure, I can tool up and do this. And that's kind of when the whole Graphlex parts thing, I, I wanted to maybe start like a, a CLA business out of it. Um, which is super naive because to CLA a camera, you have to be able to make the parts for the camera. So I was just trying to make modification parts then. And then I started getting a lot of orders for that. And then it turns back into people wanting to keep sending me their cameras again. And you have to just become comfortable with the work at a point. And uh, I was simultaneously for my own cameras, because I, at this point, you buy one Graflex, you end up with eight or nine of them in your shop, just on your own. Um, and most of them, like all, like a lot of these antique cameras, you buy them and, and the soft components, like the bellows, the hood, things that are made out of leather and cardboard, and especially in a Graflex where you have a shutter curtain that's made out of uh, rubberized silk, it rots after 90 years. And so I ended up with a lot of cameras in my shop that are completely rotten out. They don't have working shutters. And so I went on another endeavor separate to modification parts. And I, I went through, it was about two years of, of work that it required. Um, it took me about a year to figure out the materials. Because um, the Graflex shutter curtain material is long gone, technically. Um, it the, the the material I'm using is technically the correct material as specced in the late 1970s by the last iteration and history of of where they were going after they sold off. But it's making a shutter curtain is an extremely involved craft, and it was something where I was really naive, like, oh, this will be easy. It'll be an arts and crafts project, and I got into it. Uh, I think I, I started making the, the fabric out of Thor Labs BK5, that, that nice blackout curtain that you can get for super cheap. Does not work for shutter curtains. I will tell everyone on the podcast this. Uh, it does not work for shutter curtains. You can try it for some smaller dual curtain cameras. You might have success, but you probably won't. Um, the other bigger issue is when, when you're ripping a curtain out of a camera, you don't realize at first, but there's metal ribs on every aperture. So, so uh, the shutter curtain in a, in a Graflex camera is about a five foot long, long roll curtain that has about four or five different apertures cut into it, like different rectangular holes. And when that hole passes through the back of the camera, that's what allows the exposure. That's a, a very, that's the, the first focal plane shutter systems that existed circa 1898. Um, and with the Graflex though, those metal stiffening ribs, they're, they're brass. Uh, they're very, very thin stamped brass. Um, and they're extremely precisely made. They fit the curtains exactly. They need to be installed extremely precisely. And that's something where 
you start on the endeavor of, I'm going to make a shutter curtain for a camera. And then you don't realize that you have to rip the original ribs out of the camera. And usually when you pull the ribs out of the camera, you break them. So then I was off on another other process of, okay, let's make shutter curtain ribs. And that's something Without I can't get into. building a stamping press that weighs 25,000 pounds, I assume. <laughs> and that's, yeah. And and, and uh, when Graflex was doing this back in the, the, the 20s and 30s, I, I mean, Fulmer and Schwing Manufacturing, who became Graflex later on, they started up in 1890 and they were making gas lamps and stuff. Their, their main centralized factory was stamping abilities. So stamping brass, stamping aluminum and, and different sheet. Sewing machine parts, right? Yeah, yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. isn't the hard part there the tooling? I mean, you you might even yes. be able to use a fly a manual fly press to do the actual stamping if you're not producing huge quantities. But the tooling is the catch. That has to be perfect. It's and that's where you can. I, I mean, if, if I was doing this, if I was a huge factory um, and and had thousands of dollars for for startup costs and investing in all the process, I would have some real stamping dies where it's one punch and it's doing the whole part right off the bat. Mm -hmm. um, I have a process that is proprietary. I really can't get into the exact tools I use, but it, it is a thing where you, I was hammering out, out by hand. Um, I was like cutting brass with, with a blade and sitting and hammering it by hand. And the jeweler you, process. I mean, you smash your fingers enough and you learn how to make it really nicely by hand, very crude. And then the process continues to evolve. You find a way to always make something better. I mean, that's, you should be your own biggest competitor more than anything else. And, and that was where I wasn't competing with anyone else to try and make shutter curtains or make my ribs look better. It was, it was competing with myself that I, I wasn't going to put that in someone's camera looking half-ass. And I, I wasn't going to put it in my own camera looking like something that I don't want to stand behind. And so wh where I've gotten after, um, I, cause I've been doing this almost four years now, I think. Um, and I've made shutter curtains for two by threes, three by fives, three by fours, all the way up to five by seven cameras and a few different models. And each one has their own quirks. Everyone is very specific to it. Um, and it's, it, it is a craft in its own. Um, and that's why it, it took me a long time to actually like get to tool up in my shop to get a lay the mill CNC and stuff like that, because the real, the, the bulk part of this is, yeah, I, I want to work on cameras. I want to make parts for these cameras, but the biggest factor is there's components that were not being manufactured at all for the past 20 years. Um, actually, the last person to manufacture these was uh, Fred Lustig, and he passed away in 2014. Um, you know, I, I think you and I had a really interesting conversation um, about how being a cameraman or a camera repairman or woman in 1990 even uh, or before was very different than it is now, particularly for older things in that I mean, maybe a lot of shops way back in the day had a machine shop, but now it's almost required. Yeah, it's it, it turned into a, well, and even for, for a long time, I think um, you had a lot of shops that existed in the 70s, 80s, 90s that maybe didn't have the tooling, but they at least had part stock built up after. I mean, they, they were buying, uh, this is the era of, of camera repair shops that were buying out grandpa's camera repair shop and, and just changing it to a different iteration. And then what we also see is that, uh, it, especially in the last 30 years, since the 1990s, um, Graflex and, and all the anti-cameras kind of hit a lull where they weren't really popular. Digital was coming up. Uh, film niches got a little more specific for what people were doing. And Graflexes were just cheap at this point. And so, because they were so cheap, none of the active repair techs, or very few of them, I should say, there are still a handful, um, 
no one wanted to touch the cameras. So I, I, the whole knowledge just kind of went out the door. The shops that were actually repairing them just kind of went under. The, the people passed away. Um, and now we're in, we're left with, I think there's four or five people in the US that will touch a Graflex. I am one of two people in the US that will make a curtain for a Graflex. And I, not to toot my own horn, but I made cameras for, or I made shutter curtains for a bizarre amount of cameras at this point. But to, to, to the whole thing that you said of, of where these shops used to have milling machines. There's actually, I, I have a couple old Graflex manuals, um, one from General Precision in the, in the 1960s, um, uh, speed graphic repair. And then I have a military manual from the 1950s. And what's funny is in these these manuals, you'll see a, there's a spot for, it's, it's readjusting when you install a Fresnel lens in the graph block backs when they didn't have a standard, you need to mill them down. And in, in the tools, it says like screwdriver, uh, like whatever screw, uh, horizontal mill, like just drops it in there. Like, yeah, that's just a, a complacent tool in your shop, of course. Um, sure. Which is when you were in the 1950s, this was a thing. But also, uh, there's Graflex never released repair manuals because their school of thought in the 1930s and 40s was a repair tech should be savvy enough to figure the, the things out on their own, and the knowledge should be passed from person to person. So you you apprentice or train on learning these things. It wouldn't just be a oh this is like we have some great resources now on Facebook groups of of like learn camera repair and and the repair directories and stuff like that where they have manuals out. But the thing is for Graflexes there just aren't any. There are for the the speed graphics and and some of the newer cameras. But when you get old enough into like the SLRs and and the central things they work on, there never were repair materials. And there are right, some it, very, it seems yeah. like having a repair manual for a bicycle or like a 1970s motorcycle, although yeah. some some have some good ones, but like it's it's before the complexity where, you know, anybody, I think, worth their salt who was doing it professionally could probably just, you know, take the panels off and watch. And that's that's really it where it's it, it becomes one of those things where and and there's this the school of thought is still very much alive uh, in the Graflex niche. The the central Graflex community that it's existing right now has been around for twenty or thirty years. Like some of these guys have known each other for a long time. And and one of the, the schools of thought is you don't teach someone how to tear their camera apart because if they can't figure it out on their own, they shouldn't really be messing with it. <laughs> and it's I there's some circumstance where I, I that has merit for uh, trying to tear into some some more in depth cameras, but. As most SLRs, unless you know how to get into the camera, you really shouldn't be in the camera at all. But with speed graphics and other things, this and this also extends in just how graphics changed through the years. What we go from wooden cameras of the 1930s to we start getting composite framed cameras in the 60s and 70s, and and then things become more modular, where you don't need to go get your cam your your rangefinder adjusted by the shop. You have rangefinder cams that you pop into your your top rangefinder, um, and in it. But that's also the, the there, there's hours that we can talk about how the, the demise of Graflex altogether and, and how things ended in the 70s. But yeah, and the same thing happened to Leica. They went from a camera design where you could adjust all the parameters and, and you know directly to ones where you had to throw the part away and put a new part in. And it was practical for them, but it left it left a lot of these cameras orphaned as the old guys that know how to take them apart disappear, you know. Oh, it's constantly a design question for me when designing new things is do I design modules or, or pieces of things either, you know, industrially or, or even for cameras that are, you know, 
weather sealed because I've dunked them in epoxy or quick and cheap to put together because I glued them, but totally irreparable? Or, you know, do I spend a little bit more time on the front end with, uh, you know, easy to use assembly and, and multiple parts and then be able to repair it? It's, it's yeah, always I mean, I mean, tough decision. I'm a huge fan of some adjustments so that you can change your mind or fix things without starting from scratch. I, I like that. Yeah, no, that's, that's totally something where, um, Graplex, if you look at the manuals too, there are parts lists. So once you get into the 1960s, you can find active parts lists that are describing what exact screw you need for exact pieces. But I, most of my email ends up being a uh, tech support, um, just to completely free tech support of, Hey, I lost this screw. What is this? Where do I get one of these? What is this part called? And you know, like some of these things where it's like, it's been, I've been working on whatever camera for five days. Like I need to go look at the manual again and refresh myself. And I find myself digging through for a half hour of the manual looking for a specific rivet. And then you realize the entire component is not listed by Graplex because the idea was that you're going to go bring it to, well, especially for the military, you're going to go bring it to the parts guy um, and drop it hit on his desk and be like, please order me one of these. And they would just get an entire replacement door, an entire like component itself, not replacing little pieces. Um, so there's a weird amount of stuff that was just never depicted in even manuals. Um, or even in pictures, you can't even find some of these things in diagrams. They just exist on the camera. <laughs> One thing I think that adds to that is that they kept their designs pretty consistent for long periods of time. So they they really would stick to something and, le and leave it the same rather than <laughs> completely change it. But I'm sure that people got into them and changed stuff around. It's the same thing happens with Lycus. There were technicians that could basically, you know, redesign the camera and, and swap parts from completely different models and all that kind of thing. Actually, I'm sure you find um, that. <laughs> well, one of the, one of the um, there's a saying when it comes to Graflex, there are no always in Graflex and there are always no, always no in Graflex. Um, everything was always squirrely all the time. Um, especially when up until like the th things got really streamlined when you're making, making a batch of 2000, 5,000 cameras, which is where they were in the 1940s, uh, through, through the, the 1970s. Um, they were massive batches, but before that they were being built in batches of five cameras to 300 and, and little small things. So what, one of the weirdest things in, in my work is I can work on three cameras that all have identical hardware on the surface. They're all completely different underneath. You get into it and it's like, okay, they just deleted this part out of the entire system. And it's like, it wasn't there. And it's like, no, there's just no screw holes for it. Um, and it's, and this is specifically too with the speed and crown graphics. Um, when you earlier on, before they, they got a set box design, uh, you can, if you look at enough of them through the twenties and thirties, the inside of the box just changed. However, whoever was running it for those couple of years decided to build it. Um, or another part was they would, uh, why you'll see weird hardware combinations on cameras sometimes. And people will be like, oh, that didn't exist. Someone someone put the wrong hardware on that camera. It's been messed with in the 1980s. And no, it hasn't. It, what it was was a camera that got built between one batch of stamped hardware and another batch of stamped hardware. And they just ran out of parts halfway through the batch and just went to the new, they just transitioned. So it's kind of endearing that like, it's really high-end professional photography gear, but at the same time, it's kind of like that little like, it's a little hokey every now and then like things were kind of like a little spun off on, on their one-off things. Um, like maybe someone was a little tired on a Monday morning when they uh, went to work, you know, 
<laughs> but I mean, in that in that era, almost everything was manufactured like that. You know, we did not have uh, pick and place. Spots, <laughs> you know, no, that's actually. I think I, I showed you. Um, I've got uh, pictures of it. Um, but there's a. Actually, I wonder if I can pull that up here while we're we're talking. There's a. Uh, I I did a home portrait a long time ago that has a. Uh, I don't know where. Um, I, I had to redo the curtain on, on a home portrait that was uh, 1927, I think. And uh, I think I dated it out to being produced probably in August. And I, I pulled the curtain off it, and you, you got to peel it off to get the full dimension. And I, I'm peeling off the glue area. And I'm both immediately disgusted because there's grasshopper wings stuck inside the curtain on the glue. And then I was immediately impressed because I thought to myself, these are 90-year-old grasshopper wings. And then the whole picture kind of got together where it's like, okay, they're they're gluing curtains up, the windows are open, it's hot, it's the middle of August, a grasshopper <laughs> landed on the curtain, and then probably whoever like go and pick the grasshopper off and like crap, the wings are still there. Roll it up, who's who's gonna notice? Um, except for me in 90 years. Um it's really a, a weird uh, I don't know. <laughs> that's really that's really great. I like that sort of thing. And then you get into um which like off on uh, when you get into cameras like the European SLRs. Oh, here actually, uh, can I screen share for a second? Yes, uh, please. Here, it's uh, present now on the bottom right hand. Yeah, I see it. Here, this is the the grasshopper wings. Can you see it? Oh, oh wow. wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I and it's it. A little bored, but a little gross. But then also, it's it's still a, you know, that that grasshopper was uh, immortalized for a good amount of years. Did I? Is the presenting done? Am I back on camera? Yeah, yeah okay. you're back. Yeah. I'm yeah. such a, a novice to all this video chat stuff. I feel like I live in the 1960s half the time. So, um, but that's uh, when it comes to when we get over to, to like the European SLRs. Um, technically, Graflex was mass produced. Um, they were high-end professional cameras, but they weren't nearly as high-end as something, say, like a, a Kershaw Soho Reflex um, or like a Thornton and Pickard, which there's discrepancies that go into their design where it's here or there. But what you find when you go inside of those cameras is uh, there will be notes, like technician notes. Everything will have like um, every panel of the camera will be either stamped or numbered in pencil. Uh, and then you'll usually on, on Kershaw's, the entire mirror box drops out the bottom of the camera so you can work on it and tension and stuff. Um, and there is a there nine out of ten times there's a proof uh, signature and then a date of when it was proofed in the factory. And I've managed to a uh, few different members and other groups. Um, we've traced the exact same initials on like seven different years of these cameras, which is who knows who that person is. I think it's like a JP, uh, but it's that's especially I mean when you see handwriting on a camera from the 1920s and you realize how how wrong society has gotten a normal handwriting script. Uh, when someone's like little little note is in gorgeous cursive writing, um, total different. Well, part era. of that has to do with pen technology, which we could get into uh, between Spencerian and Danielian script, but uh, <laughs> that's maybe for a but, different podcast. But yeah, <laughs> but it still gets into the whole um, just that the, the delicacy of of manufacture, um, and then you look at all of these other cameras too, and. Uh, it's something you don't notice at first until you really spend enough hours looking at these, but they all have these beautiful embossed squares. And it, when you see a 35 millimeter camera wrapped in, in leather, it's 
I mean, there's like the different retailers that sell leather kits. They're, they're little laser cut kits. You, you put it on, it glues it, it goes into the spot it's supposed to go. When you're wrapping something like a Graflex, you're wiping glue on the entire camera and you're stretching stuff and cutting box corners and doing real, it's, I mean, a place like Graflex had, you you had your, your machining department and then you had your box making department and then you had your, your curtain crafting area and then also like, they were all their own separate little facilities in the main man manufacturing plant. So instead of just, it's the camera facility where things are getting shipped out and like machined on us, like these days on CNC and stuff and, and everything's just being popped out in factories and then one person sitting there just putting everything together. It was all of these little entities existing of, I mean, when you strip a Graflex down to wood for the first time, you start realizing that whoever was picking the panels of mahogany that went on these cameras, they know they knew the, the mahogany wasn't going to be shown to anybody, but there are some of these gorgeous cuts. Um, and they're, they're like quarter sawn panels. Like there's really beautiful woodwork that is just hidden. Um, there's, so there's, I've been in some of the last of those old style factories where they have the different specialized areas. Um, I did work um, in a, the last plant in this country that made really big equipment from beginning to end. In other words, starting from pig iron and ending up with finished. Oh, rock on. Uh, in this, in this case, they were big uh, machine pumps, a really large scale. Uh, but the thing went, that you saw right away was that each of those separate shops had a completely different subculture and there were very different kinds of people in them. And it was fascinating. It was like, it was almost like taking the different guilds in a medieval town and assembling them under a yeah. factory, factory roof. You know, it, it was a very different and wonderful. Well, and, and that speaks period. to uh, like like here in Duluth, um, we have uh, a couple big names of we're, we're a main sewing man. We used to be a, a sleazy port city in the 70s is kind of the stigma that our city has. But um, Duluth Pack, uh, canvas good manufacturer, they've existed since like the 1890s. And they've been in town and they, they're still around. And then we have, uh, alternatively, there's another Heritage Bay manufacturer, Frost River. And then you have, uh, there's someone that makes really high-end motorcycle suits in town. But they're all these sewing industries. At that, So I worked for Frost River for uh, a good while. Um, and I was their sewing runner. So I'm the one putting sewing kits together in the basement and then running all the way up to the sewing floor and running kits between uh, the finishing and quality control and, and riveting and all these different things. And so... You, you're in a factory like that and sewing factories have not aged <laughs> like no, nothing is nothing has gotten i mean the machines get more modern but a factory like that down in the basement the, the two guys i was working with had been working there for 15 years um and they had been working before that they were working at duluth pack before that like so they, they their whole life was like leather work and crafting and it's the same way where what's what's wild is you start to realize that these employees like any like local industry labor force um they're transitioning around from all these businesses so you have a hundred years of cumulative uh like sewing industry and other manufacturing industry knowledge that's being just passed around from all of these little entities and companies and so that's actually like um a part part of the nice part of being in duluth here is uh like i've got a uh, sitting off camera two massive totes full of uh aircraft leather um came from a we have a an upholsterer in town that specializes in upholstering private planes um and they have much scrap leather and they can't do anything with it so now i've got a bunch of a uh, jet seat leather <laughs> and it's you know and it, but and even there you walk i walked into that factory and huge room and you've got all of these little it, it all these little microcosms of 
there's the people who are running the little skyver. You've got the couple sewing guys over there talking. Um, and then the whole corporate side of things. So it's, you know, like the real industrial manufacturing side of stuff, like especially where the machinery doesn't change. Um, when I was working at Frost River, we were using uh, riveting machines from World War II and things pre-World War II. And I know this is the exact same thing in other shops in town too. We have a, there's a big tool and die maker over in Superior, Wisconsin. And they're, uh, from what I've heard, they have, I think like 16 uh, Bridgeport mills all set up in a gang uh, for tooling, like like old school manufacturing. Um, just wild to see it still alive and still thriving to an extent mm -hmm. when you have- That's great. I mean, there's like, cause there's a lot of merit for, uh, Chinese manufacturing and things that can be done on a much lower cost than we can do here in the US. Um, but it's still, it's it's nice to see that we can keep some of these industries alive for very good reasons too. I mean, when, when you have tool and die manufacturer in your own hometown, uh, you kind of have a little bit quicker connection on things you need right away. So Yeah, and there's another side to it, which is understanding. And I a lot of stuff now is designed by people who only know the touch of a keyboard. And they don't understand materials in the same way as someone who's had to scissor it for a year or, you know, skiver with a knife or whatever you're talking about. There's a there's a different level of understanding that comes through the, the touch and the hands on experience. And well, that and that translates into fewer fewer errors in the design and um or faster errors. Well or control it, knowledge <laughs> of them too. Just well, being aware of of your limitations of your own product. There's right, so many things or, where you write it off on or I was going to say, or the things that the product can do that you wouldn't know if you didn't have firsthand experience yeah. working with it. So you yeah. can take advantage of things that 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 material will do. Yeah. So like this this shop, the foundry I'm talking about, um, that it all started with the guy who m controlled the mixture of iron in the giant uh, uh, melter. This guy had a Salvador Dali wax mustache with perfect 90 degree angles on it. <laughs> they had enough demand for their product to run around the clock seven days a week. And they had to shut the whole freaking place down every night because he went to sleep and they couldn't do it without him. And <laughs> you have to picture this giant bat with a man standing over it with with uh, sensory equipment. And he's reading all these dials. And then he instructs these trolls to pour bags of powder down into this molten giant molten iron we're talking of thousands and thousands of gallons you know of molten iron and when and then he basically tastes the little spoon like the chef and says okay you know pour it and then they take a thousand gallon dipper and go off and pour an, an engine block for, that's the size of a locomotive you know and it was just an incredible place but at the far end of it, at the very other end, they're painting the blocks and, you know, goes through mm -hmm. machining and all that. So if the machinists run into a problem with the iron, they just walked, you know, half a mile to the other end of the plant and talked to the guy with the with the amazing mustache and solved it. And it was it was just it was a completely different world and not and didn't involve, you know, having to call someone up on the other side of the planet and translate to a really different language and all that stuff. Yeah, I think you hit on something there. Um that's also really important. And, and I think that also is stemming from getting into how I got into to making parts for cameras and what I'm doing, because I'm in a, in a bizarre niche where I am one of the only people doing this or in, I mean, also part of this is like, like you can, I mean, people can invest $60,000 and start up a restaurant. You can do that. Um, starting up Graplex parts was done 
with no startup funds. I am not a rich man. I did not have money for my parents or, or any of this fund. It's it's something where I've, I've scraped it by to force us to, to work for the past few years. But, and that's I, where a lot of people, especially the, the millennial generation of, of jobs don't exist, your education. Uh, my brother uh, specifically is college educated. He has a very nice degree. Um, he's like a technical writer. Uh, he's full-time sewing bike bags now. And he loves it. He, he works like 35 hours a week. It's technically full-time, um, but he sews bike bags. He's like one of like three people in the sewing shop. And it's it's that hands-on man, like manufacturing. But part of what this gets into is that you have a, it's lost knowledge, especially when, when you have the one guy at the foundry who the, the whole foundry has to stop when he goes to sleep because there are no replacements in there, especially like when you could go to school for camera repair 30 years ago, you really can't anymore. Um, and there's, you see this spot up in, in how many industries, like I'm, I'm involved in how many Facebook groups, um, and a lot of them end up, uh, like I run a, a lathe that's from the 1950s. There are collector groups around these lathes that are awesome, just like any other camera collector group. And, and say with that, I'm in manual machining groups on Facebook too, which are fantastic resources. And what you see are, there's constantly, uh, old timers coming up like, Hey, I've got a job in whatever state is anyone here a machinist that wants to move and get that job? And the problem is because they have all these kids that are going for CNC machining who can't turn single point threads on a manual lathe. Like they, they, the understand, they know how to run the computer coding. They know how to do everything by the book, like with formulas. But when it comes to the actual hands-on nitty gritty, like feeling that's behind a lot of this manufacturing of just intuition, I guess you can call it. Um, that's the lost knowledge that is like being strived for. Um, yeah. And with what and I'm doing, it's I, hard to teach. Hard to teach too, and it's, and it's to some degree, even when you have a, an instructor, you still have to teach yourself. Um, oh yeah, and that's example. yeah. That's well, and that's like your your, your body has to learn it. it has to learn the material. Yeah. Well, and that and that <laughs> comes into uh, like like curtain making. Um, I I personally consider uh, I tackled um, shutter curtain building from a point of view of this is something I can do by myself. I'm totally capable. I can I can get through it. And you beat your head over against the wall uh, enough hours, and you do this, and realize that it's no, it's something that you actually need to apprentice for. And again, this is one of those things in life where you can go to school for four years, et cetera, do this and that, um, or you can dedicate the exact same amount of time to cutting your teeth on doing something. And and so what I did was I spent enough hours apprenticing for myself, I guess you could say, where I was making shutter curtains where I'd get done with it and look at it and be like, crap, I have to throw away $100 worth of curtain material and 20 hours of time and start over from scratch, invest another 20 hours on the same curtain, and like all the work over again. And when you do that enough times, the same way uh, that this would have been done in, in an apprentice shop. If you would have been working in like, say the wood shop at Graflex and you're screwing up enough camera bodies, your boss is gonna be pretty mad at you um like whoever's managing you is not going to be super happy and you're going to learn pretty quick like how to do something without screwing it up um and it comes into to lathe tooling too uh this week i was making these little little tiny bushings for uh speed graphics and i have a set of eight that are perfect i also have a set of 20 that are all just dimensionally wrong and i'm sitting there indicating this and, and it's it's not that i'm being negligent necessarily it's just the motions and, and learning the process. And I think that speaks to a lot of prototyping too, is it's this constant, you're always going to be learning. And I am always learning. Like I'm not, I'm not, 
a master machinist, a master crafts, like hammer craftsman. Like I'm really good at what I do. I acknowledge this, but like, I'm always going to continue learning. Um, and I, I think you put yourself at a, uh, what is that? Uh, at a loss if you don't consider yourself to be trying to learn and trying to get better. So I don't know, everyone needs room to grow. Ethan just asked me to, to, uh, to lay out a logical uh, plan that was going to take me seven years into the future, and that's sort of completely impossible thing for me to do. Well, well maybe we can start uh, five months in the past. <laughs> yeah, so, so the way I tend to work is that I follow a lead, and it, it suggests 10 more leads, and that suggests 10 more, and I end up in the middle of, an, of a crazy spider web uh, with, with goals in every possible direction. So... I don't, I don't end up with a linear pl plot, but I've come from two, two basic starting points, um, the, the background in the history of science, and then a lifetime as a craftsperson and an artist. And these things are actually not different at all. People always like to say they're different, but they're not. They're all a matter of experimentation. It's always about asking questions, trying things, finding solutions that suggests more questions and it never stops. And both fields are really the same in that respect. Um, and photography is a nice kind of bringing together of those things. But for me, I really, really love the image making part. Um, I like working on cameras, but I like actually taking photographs even more. So where I start always is with, uh, very often with the desire to use a particular lens, um, and lenses are kind of a, an obsession and I can't either afford nor do I have the desire to own all the many different kinds of cameras that you can put lenses on. So what I'm always looking for is a simple camera that appeals to me um, and press cameras in particular do. Um, I like the Mamiya Press rangefinders that you mentioned. I've got the old G model, which comes with a Graflex back on it or Graflock back on it and also has the uh, rear movements as well. So it's kind of got all the features in one camera. But what happened to me was uh, I've been shooting with old large format and old large format lenses in order to use press cameras. But I suddenly realized that if I could get modern system lenses onto a speed graphic, then I would have all these other options of lenses from the 60s, which I love. I love the their... their they're starting, they're starting to get advanced coatings and more advanced designs, but they're still old fashioned. They still have character and they're cheap, especially from, you know, Russian manufacturers and, and, uh, and Ukrainian manufacturers. Uh, so I just kind of boldly decided to saw this speed, this, uh, uh, baby speed graphic in half. Um, and in the process of dissecting it, I discovered that if I didn't cut through any of the structural parts, I could re re get to exactly the right uh, focal flange focal distance for a Mamiya 645, which was good news for me because I have some Mamiya 645 lenses. And now that I'm experimenting with it, I've discovered that most of the lenses I want to use can just go right on a Mamiya 645 adapter. 
So I don't need to keep building different fronts for this camera. I'm able to use a lot of these lenses are designed for six by six and they, they, there's plenty of space for those lenses to project onto a six by nine film back, which isn't really six by nine. They're usually six by eight. Uh, so I've got a Graflock back camera that I can put most system lenses on for medium format. And, and uh, for those of you who are listening along as, excuse me, as you're driving, um, go to Nick's um, uh, Flickr page um, where he's simply Nick Lyle, and you'll be able to see this. I, I, uh, I believe that, in fact, as we record this, the current one, uh, the current picture is one of these. A lot of things I really like about this camera are that it's a ground glass camera, so I'm seeing through the lens. But with the, these newer lenses, they're f2.8 lenses for the most part. So this little silly Graflex pop-out shade is plenty. You can focus easily just by holding it up, pointing, turning the, turning the helical, and then slap in some film and shoot. So it's, it's very easy to use and stop down, of course, because, you know, at 2.8, you're going to have a narrow depth of field. But And, and it helps if you put uh, turn the focus peaking on, on that Graflex body. No, that's spelled differently. It's P. It's P E E K I N G. Okay. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> but but it, I'm finding that it's just it really it's really fun to use, and it's this is kind of how I think is that I want to develop this farther. I want to make a version of this camera that's lighter and simpler that has a focal plane shutter and some sort of system lens mount. And I'm very happy so far just basing everything on Mamiya 645 since, you know, you can get every kind of adapter imaginable for that format. And uh, in the film backs, there's a, a few little limitations I want to overcome. So one of the limitations is that the standard Graflock back takes the Graflex uh, style clip-on ground glass. And that's wonderful, except that the very best roll film backs won't fit on it. Uh, the the newer the Pro SD uh, RB67 backs are fantastic, beautifully made things, and you can get things like six four five and you know all the different sizes. But the little the little clip hooks on the Graflex back that take the ground glass get in the way, and you can't mount it. The early RB67 backs go on just fine. The sort of hinky old Graf Graflex Rolfing backs fit on okay, um, but I really want to be able to get the newer ones on. And then a rotating back would be nice because this camera is very good to use on a tripod when you're trying to do narrow depth of field, precise stuff. So not having to tip the camera on its side would be an advantage. So there are all these little, it's like there are all these little features that need to be brought together to get the perfect version of this camera. But you don't need the Pro SD back because the whole point of the Pro SD back was that it had that double exposure interlock um yeah but they're also yeah. just better made than the earlier yeah, ones they're, sure. really, they're really beautiful but they're, and... but they're way more expensive I, and i understand if you already have a stock of them you want to use them but you're not using any really you're not really taking advantage of the features of those pro sd things right i mean not... other than the not jamming and holding film flat features the no think, wiggly all... uh, advanced lever feature. Aren't we fancy, <laughs> Ethan? Oh my! You know, if you're going to spend five months building a camera, what's another fifty bucks on the back? So right. the point I'm trying to make is that there are all these little niggling, niggling details that over time I'd like to solve and 
and there are different ways to solve it. And I, I still like using lenses with a leaf shutter. So I've got another camera going for that, which solves another disadvantage. So this is a, a, this is a Shen Hao sliding back, mm -hmm. beautifully made out of brass and wood. And it has, it has a revolving film back on it. So you can, you can go from landscape to portrait mode, and then you can just slide the ground glass over back and forth. I want to point out that Nick plans to use this thing as a handheld camera. Yes. No, no, no. I don't really plan to use this as a handheld camera. But I plan to make an extremely lightweight camera that I can use on a lightweight tripod because I like to carry this stuff up into the mountains and back hey, into the woods. Hey, Nick, um, you, you mentioned lightweight, but I wonder if it's just lightweight or physical size or ergonomics well, physical as size well, is part of it so you're going after right so part of the point of the sliding back now i understand why uh graham likes uh single lens reflexes and probably i'll build one of those too at some point oh. but then you get into trouble with the big mirror and the big mirror makes it hard to use uh, wide angle lenses and i love wide angle lenses so sliding back makes it a fairly quick to focus and shoot a version of these cameras that can have an extremely shallow flange back distance. And that's useful uh, as, you know, with system with nons, you're limited. Um, you need to get quite close to the film and the mirror is hard to deal with for that. Uh, so there are all these, there are mechanical solutions. There's many different ways to do it, but I also like simplicity and a sliding back is extremely simple. Um, and quick. And the reason why should it be quick? You know, why does it matter? This is supposed to be the good kind of slow photography and all that stuff. But I really like, uh, I find myself getting set up in conditions where the light is constantly changing and fluctuating and where things are in motion and I need to focus and then get ready and shoot fairly quickly, you know, in these little lulls between the wind and, and that sort of thing. So it's it's not the only kind of camera, but it's one other type that I want to be able to use. So all for me, I'm always pursuing how to make really impractical cameras more practical. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm after. <laughs> and and because I don't know, I like working with them, and I always find fault, and then I want to improve it, and I want to make it do things more my way, and. It's much easier to do that with this sort of carpenter's approach where you can take pieces apart and screw them together than it is to go out and buy a million different cameras and, you know, and try and keep them all running and, and, uh, that whole thing. Well, and, and what's the, what's the flange distance that you ended up with on that, that camera again? Like what's uh, the shortest see, focal length? Uh, well, that one's it's, it's right around 60. I, I don't remember yeah. exactly, but so, 60, and you could go, you could go shorter by quite a bit. But it would but, require cutting into a brass uh, support that holds the back of the camera on, yep, which yep, would then the, need to be replaced. Right. And, or, and Graham sent me another baby that I can play with. Um, it, it's an older one, but it's worth um, it. So, so one of the nice parts of this, actually, is that what you've already done is that you've shortened the flange distance farther than the camera can natively go. Because right. I, th I think most speed graphics, they end up at it's like 65 or 67 millimeter like minimum flange distance. Right, and with drop bed. that's yeah, and that's longer than even uh, it's it's shorter on the Graflex, the slotted holder style, but the, the newer like with the Graflock back, you have an extra umpteenth amount of space there. Right. Have you ever heard of or seen um, Graflex made uh, two batches of like five hundred of these? Uh, they did a four by five speed graphic that is a three by four rotation, and then they did a three by four Graflex 
speed graphic that is a two by three rotation. No, I haven't. I do have a really nice uh, three by four speed graphic a pacemaker that is in great condition and the shutter is great and everything. And what I have on it now is a four by five back. Oh yeah. Uh, that that was designed to allow you to shoot four by five sheet film on the three by four camera and just throw away the you know the unexposed part. Yeah. And then that's really wonderful. But when I started putting system lenses on it, I discovered that this this back, if you put a roll film back on it, it's not centered on the lens. And so that you too. you yep. you you lose the image circle and a lot of a lot of uh you know, a lot of combinations don't work. So what I need to do on this one is put on a three by four back that's centered on the lens. I'm uh, not a three by four, a two by three back that's centered on the lens. So that's the trick I need to solve with this one. And that's one of my next projects because I love using this camera. It's much smaller and lighter than a four by five, but it still has a really long bellows throw. So it can take a, a really wide range of lenses and, uh, and it can retract pretty far back too. So I can shoot a lot of system lenses on this camera as well. Um, and I've Nick, done it, but it's but the problem is I can't use the full image circle. Nick, and did I, the original back not fit roll film backs? Yeah, three by four uh, cameras, the only roll film backs you can get are really crappy old, old, old ones. And the, the old Graflex ones that are knob wind are not really worth working with because the film is so unflat. But <laughs> yeah, and you can get pretty decent ones for two by three backs, and you can use RB67 and really nice ones on two by three backs. So the secret is I just need to get a two by three back on here and get it as close to the shutter as I can. So that well, and, and part part of that is uh, I it's a, a common question of people are like, why is three by four stuff so uncommon? Why does it cost so much money to find the couple holders that exist? Uh, there were like a third as many three by four cameras made as any other two by three or four by five. Um, yep. By the yeah. time that three by four speed graphics kind of existed, and actually even more to the point, three by four graph lock is a weird, like ugly cousin of the whole system. Um, yeah. Graph locks actually did not want to make three by four graph lock when they were making four by five graph lock. Uh, it was only until they get they got enough questions for it because they didn't want to make holders. Um, mm -hmm. They got enough questions for it, so they made a. Three by four graph lock, uh, which you will never see one. Um, they only made a few hundred of them, uh, but it's a it's essentially like a slotted style back without the slot, and you just shove the holder in against felt, and uh, they all ended up having to come back for warranty service within six months. Uh, and by in those six months, Graphlex retooled and made three by four graph lock, but they just well, never this, wanted yeah, to make the system. Right, this is a three by four graph yeah. lock camera, and I have the perfect back for it. Um, it was but, it's because three by four started to die by uh, World War Two. Uh, and everything was like, well, either do four by five or do way smaller. And then after World right. War II, people were like, well, three by four is still a press format. Let's use it again. And Graphlex is like, we don't want to do it, but we'll do it. Right. Um, what I was going to show, though, quick is this is uh, the back of a, a Graphlex Series C. Mm -hmm. And so it's this is a, a three by four, but the same style. You have a button on, on the side of the camera that pushes in. Yep. And that releases a latch for the rotation ring of the camera. And that lets the back rotate uh, a full 360 degrees. But it's it's that same setup where it's it's a stamped metal flange on the back of the camera where uh, Graflex for the 3x4, and this is all you would essentially have to do is, if if this thing existed, would be a, a perfect stamped or, I guess at this point, a 3D printer could work too. You could probably harvest most of the components out of a 3x4 camera, and then you just size it down to a 2x3. Um, that's what, so that's what I'm basically... Yeah, looking at. Um, although this you is know. not a rotating back. 
This My, one's not a rotating back. I thought of putting an RB67 rotating back on it, which would be fairly straightforward. Yes? My issue dealing with parts that have been stamped, and I'm sure, Graham, to some extent, you have tried to mill something that has been stamped because you don't have, you know, a 12-foot-tall, 20,000-pound stamping press with, you know, hydraulic pumps and such, and you've found that it's very hard to mill something that is as thin as a uh, original, you know, stamped thin stock. And you probably have milled like 90% of a few parts and then just ate the thing as, as there's no connection to, uh, to the chuck. Um, yes. But in 3D printing, like I built a Hasselblad hood, you know, that, that fits into that stamped uh, curled, uh, you know, place where you, yep. you put the hood and it worked great. It held my cell phone and I could take like a digital picture and have a viewfinder <laughs> and then shoot Polaroids or film on the back. But, you know, I was dealing with interfacing with, and this is why like, I don't, I designed cameras from scratch where all the tolerances are made for 3d printing Yep. because I was dealing with, you know, I had to have less than a millimeter shim to slide into the top of a Hasselblad and, you know, I could make it, but it would fall apart every, you know, two rolls of film. And and I wonder, you know, how, how you sort of deal with that when, when I mean, I, I know that I could not make 3D printed stuff that would be robust at those tolerances. I know I could make it, but it would just be gossamer. Well, that's why um, part of why I really like working with metal and machining itself is it, it gets into one of those things of... Uh, you don't need to change your process or change your tools more than you change what you're understanding you can control. So, which is like this camera here has a technically a stamped metal back that I fabricated myself. The whole thing I CNC'd, uh, it actually, this cute little one, this is a, a Thornton Pickard, um, three by four SLR. Uh, it's got some funky stuff going on to it. Um, I, I have the hood extended with uh, stamped aluminum. And then, but on the back of the camera, I've engineered this little, brass switch pushes in and that unlocks the rotation wheel and this is a technically a, that's a the weird smoothest amalgam. i've ever seen anything like that move by the way <laughs> <laughs> well and, like and rubik's well, so, cube so part of it is is when oh, I almost fell off my chair um especially when it comes to machining um when when i pick a stock to work from like when you're working with with pla uh, or, or 3d printing you're getting your 1.75 millimeter uh filament but you still need to go in and, and mic out your filament to make sure that it's actually 1.73, like you're over under extruding. And so you that's like the whole, it's like black magic where there's just these rogue things that can go on, like what is happening to your heat, your extrusion, what's your environment like. When it comes to working with metal and especially sheet metal, which is why I really like sheet metal for backs like that is sheet metal comes out of the, the mill at a specific thickness with a specific yeah. machine tolerance. Yeah. And all you have to do is cut, bend it, make sure that everything's right. And technically your your distances for, for raising any flange distance is perfect. Um, and then when it comes to like when I'm working on a lathe, I work usually out of the exact same stock outer diameter that I need for my end part, um, where I don't really have to do much work to get it where it is. And by design, it has that precision built into it, you know, and, and with, 3D printing, you can do all that effort and, and you can watch your tolerances and, and sit and, and accept for it and count for it all. But especially when you're running like a CNC with metal, um, it's a lot more of an autopilot where 
but then again, too, uh, th this is a thing that that um, people will look at something like a lathe. Uh, like I, I post stuff all the time on on my uh, Instagram story of of lathe work because it's spent a lot of hours standing out at making chips, and something that's not always conveyed is machining has very similar like constraints where you have uh, tool deflection where like mm -hmm. even on like a CNC or mill, your tool maybe by a couple mills is just tweaking off to the side or or with a lathe. Um, I work a lot with brass and I work a lot with form tools. Um, so I'm pressing a strong tool in into very skinny brass and that brass is bending out of the way. Yeah, it's it turns into a noodle at a thousand RPM. Um, right. which and whatever really whatever inconsistent whatever inconsistency you may have in that material is going to be fighting with the, with, mm -hmm. the, with the tool and you get, yeah, you get a dance. Well, but that's I've, got, the... I've kind of gotten into, uh, I use more of a carpentry approach for machining. Um, but what I'm working on now with, uh, aluminum, because I don't have a lot of tools is I'll make crude cuts with simple tools and then take something like a, a router table and make the precise final cut. And yep. in that can, you can build up pretty accurate stuff that way. And it's, tr you know, trial and error works fine. The material's cheap, it's soft, it's easy to cut. I, I go with a little thick, you know, the thing with aluminum is yep. it's soft. Uh, and it, so you make it a little thicker, but it's a lot lighter. So, you know, it's a trade-off. Uh, what yeah. really impresses me about Graflex is in the pacemaker ones, my favorites is how darn, how much stainless steel they put into them. Stainless steel is, is a little more, a little harder to work with in that kind of a direct hands-on way um but it's well, something i want to do more of I, i'm definitely going to build an all stainless steel camera for submerse for underwater photography pretty soon oh boy <laughs> this kind of turns into a um on, on the whole thing of, of graphics working with stainless steel uh you also see i mean initially i started working with brass and, and other metals back in 1910 but what you're also watching there is is the company is manufacturing cameras on the front end of things but uh, William Fulmer, the, the brainchild behind the the Graflex and all, well, that's another topic, but uh, behind all the manufacturing processes they did. Um, when you go and look at William Fulmer's patents, he has the patents for the cameras, but he also has patents for his own tooling. There's an entire machine that he patented yeah. in, I think, 19, 1917 that cuts the, uh, it's the gear track on the bottom of speed graphic uh, rails, the, the focusing rails. It's it's what's right. actually driving it. And he obviously fed up with, with how things worked committed the time to patenting his own machine that was dedicated to just that. And so you have like, yeah, of course they ended up working with stainless because that's where they were. And that's what the industry was calling for. And those are, beautiful, those are beautiful. Those are beautiful. too. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, so a similar thing. So it, it gets into materials. So I have an old, uh, one of my power hammers is an old mechanical hammer, uh, something called a little giant that it, it, it strikes with a 15 pound weight. Uh, I mean, a 50 pound weight on onto an anvil, but the way it the way it operates through is this very weird, sloppy centrifugal force system where you're bouncing the hammer against a spring, and it, it at different speeds it has different harmonics, and it's it's very hard to control. And it's a very simple guide where you the way they built it, it was cast iron on cast iron. And what happens is if you let it get out of adjustment, which you always did then it would start to oscillate in the tracks and it would wear them into a curve and it would quickly go completely downhill. And what I had to do with this tool was have somebody machine uh, the tracks back a, a solid quarter inch straight again, and then bolt on a piece of brass that would be yep. now the bearing surface, and then allow that to be adjusted very subtly by shims. 
And that's worked for 20 years with no problem because the, 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 the part that was wearing all the time is a brand new cast iron part. And the part that was causing the trouble now is a much softer part that won't, mm -hmm. that won't wear the part that was in trouble. Essentially. It's like, you just, you need to balance the material. So one isn't mistreating the other. Oh, yeah. entirely. Yeah. And that, that should have been how the thing was designed in the first place, but you know, it was possible to retrofit it. And well, and solve you, the problem. you see that in other camera manufacturing too. Um, and it's things that I deal with, with, with some of the things I'll replace. Um, and you lose it when, when you come from a world of like automation and like 3D printing things, and then you look at the alternative, which is, oh, I can pay a machine shop to do this. Why would I make it out of aluminum when I could make it out of steel? And it's like, you're making it out of aluminum because it's sacrificial. Um, and there's a lot of parts, even with inside of cameras, and you see it more with machine tools. Um, a lot of my lathe is made out of Zamic, uh, like a, a zinc aluminum uh, alloy that was really, which you guys probably know about, but uh, if really popular in the 50s and 60s for manufacturing because it was a soft enough but very hard aluminum. Um, and most of the stuff on the lathe is made out of that and you really can't make it again. So instead of people will break something and be like, oh, I'll mill this out of steel now. And it's like, don't make it out of steel because you're going to break even more expensive parts on your machine. Yeah, you know? so Babbitt, the Babbitt bearings on this old hammer have never been adjusted and they are just fine. And that's a, <laughs> a bearing which you make. The design of the machine is such that you, you, you carefully align your shaft inside of a hollow kind of a cup, and then you pour a molten alloy called Babbitt, which is sort of a fancy pewter kind of material into that, um, into that mold. And it perfectly fits itself to the part. And then they design in a way that you can shim it as it wears, you can shim it a little bit. That thing's lasted forever. And there's a wooden yeah. clutch that drives this whole machine. It's a piece of <laughs> apple, a piece of apple. That again, I have never even adjusted and it takes the full force constantly. It's always slipping. It's designed to be always slipping. It's a big cone shaped piece of wood that again has never even needed a shim in it. It's, it's amazing. Um, so it's getting I mean, those materials right. The, the way they interact is, is a big deal. And then people used to pay a lot of attention to that. Um, now it's kind of, well, how cheap can I make it? You know? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, but part of that too is, is replacement cost. You know, when, when it, it comes to something of, especially I think in the world of cameras, it's much easier to just readily break something by dropping it. Um, and at that point, cheap replacement parts are really the bread and butter of it. But it, it also stems from, I mean, look at uh, like, like the, the drop hammer, how many years of manufacturing and, and industry went into designing everything that went around that. I mean, lathes have existed for hundreds of years now and that's been slowly refining itself um personally i'm really uh enthused by like antique gun manufacturing because you have precision life or death kinds of instruments where like the person testing it could very well kill themselves on the object but they're somehow trusting their tools which are at this point hand files even you know <laughs> so yeah but i mean these the thing about the hammers is that they're designed to beat on themselves hundreds of times a minute you know, with a huge hammer and that that's just a bad, a bad situation in the start, you know, to start with. Um, so, so it takes it to an extreme, but you know, the other end of this we've talked about maybe before is the development of a really accurate clock for, you know, ocean na navigation. There's a great book about that. And that was all 100% in the end about material choices. It was how can you make something that's basically self-repairing <laughs> under really adverse circumstances well it, 
some of the um, actually uh, a, a common issue I deal with um, in Thornton reflex cameras is part of the mirror linkage is a big chunk of brass. And after the camera has been fired, especially when these are cameras that sit on a shelf most of the time, um, when someone's the family's kept it because it used to be old great grandpa's camera. Um, it sits on a shelf, it doesn't actually get fired, but all of the things that can move get moved all the time. And so you end up with cameras that the, the mirror linkage can't actually flip the mirror up anymore because it's worn itself down so far because it was made out of brass pressing against stainless steel, which when it, that was also an, an issue that I deal with in some of these cameras is, I think it was the idea that these are high-end materials and not necessarily the, the longevity of the materials themselves. Because yeah. I've been inside enough of these Thorntons where you have a, a stainless steel screw holding in a brass plate and the whole thing has rusted itself together and you're never going to get it apart. Yep. Um, and even that's with, with the Graflexes on the SLRs, there's a little linchpin that's driven through the mirror shaft and that holds the whole thing together. That linchpin is steel and it's driven into brass. And so the hardest part of this is if you ever can't get that pin out, what you have to do is drill through the pin, but the pin is significantly harder metal than what you're trying. So so you have to drill, which I have a, a couple pictures of this actually, of um, a steel pin with a hole drill, drilled through it, and you manage to not touch the brass around it. That's something where you spend two hours drilling a pin out. And then um, maybe, re and it, maybe they, re reverse tap that hole, <laughs> and then you can spin <laughs> it out. <laughs> yeah, no, so, and, and I, I've had, what was that? Okay, before we go to, I'm going to take us on a, a different tangent, right? Okay. So, I mean, you have the advantage of 190, 50 years of these cameras in use, looking them, at them as sort of repairman and a machinist, and you are able to replace or even improve some material choices or, you know, have access to things like, you know, in 1900s, it was even harder than it is now to... Uh, mill stainless steel, which I hate doing. I try and stick to aluminum every time I can. And if it's for a professional job and it's stainless, I just send it to a fab. Um, but but so as you replace and improve, I and and we've talked about this a little bit. I think probably where this is heading is um, eventually you've replaced and improved almost every part of some camera. And maybe maybe Graflex parts will be one day, you know, new Graflex incorporated, or you know, I mean, not that name, right? Uh, <laughs> but but uh, Graham, are are you thinking about uh, building cameras from scratch or, or nearly from scratch one day? I think so you and was, Nick are headed it, in the same direction from two sure. different sides. I've always yep. wanted to make cameras. Uh, like, I, I mean, it, it was a, a pipe dream years back where it was like, oh, I can 3D print this, I can 3D print that. I might have access to these things. And it was always like one of those wishes of, if only I had a mill, if only I had a lady that could do these things. And and honestly, by uh, I ended up getting an art grant this last year locally um, that supplied the funds for the milling machine. Um, and then on my own, because you have that stuff, you invest more. But my long goal now is, not that it's something I necessarily like want to right now think of for a profit item at all, but it's personally, I have, after I've been inside enough SLRs specifically, there's a lot of these mechanical things that I don't like. Like there's, when, when you have five different uh, camera manufacturers that all existed in Europe at the same time, they were all fighting with each other trying to do different patents. And what you get is one camera that has an awesome mirror system in it that works really well. And then another camera that has a great shutter system, but a terrible mirror system. 
And they could never put these together because they were all competing until the 1930s. And so kind of one of my long running goals now is I want to make kind of the end all be all of what I'm the most picky about for parts in a camera, which is much, I mean, that seems to be where you're going, Nick, with this whole thing is that you see what exists on like, I mean, yeah. a speed graphic is its thing. It was intended to be a kit that served one purpose, but you're seeing its potential to be a slightly more refined kit towards a different circumstance, which honestly, Graphlex probably was never going to consider trying to put on a lens that has a focusing helicoid included in it. You know, they were never going to try and compete on that right. level with anybody else. No, and it, and it probably didn't make sense at the time because, no. you know, what beat, what beat Graphlex was the Roloflex. And that was yeah. quickly, quickly eaten by Nikon. But really what was going on was that the printing technology was changing. I mean, what kept Graphlex alive? My dad, first newspaper job, he used a crown graphic, which I still have and still works great. That's awesome. But That's good. the whole point of that big negative was that you could contact print it. You could shoot mm -hmm. one shot. You could rush back. Somebody could dip it in a tank and develop it. And you could lay it and you could make your, you know, you, it could go to press within literally minutes, which... Oh, entirely. Yeah, and that was because they were using a fairly primitive darkroom and printing processes, then it it really paid to have this big negative. As soon as that wasn't necessary anymore, then you know, then that all went out the window. This this brings up a really good point. We're in this this very I, and all of you obviously notice this. I mean, uh like Ethan like especially with Camera Redactor, like we're in a photographic renaissance right now of sorts where these anal analog or alternative processes are like becoming really popular again. And what we're specifically seeing uh, with like the Graphlex community and, and these modification communities is there are all these desires that did exist in the 1950s, like uh, wanting a speed graphic that has a rotation on it. Everybody has always wanted that since the 1930s. <clears throat> the box literally could not make a vertical image until they redecided in the 1960s when they were rebranding and the whole company changed over. Let's make a camera that can do rotation because that was being called for again. But especially things like a very short focal distance or uh, SLRs as a whole, like large format SLRs effectively died by the 1950s because the market wasn't there anymore. And now we're at this point where we get a lot of uh, like fine art photographers and, and other press photographers who are still trying to keep these, use these formats because they, they see the legitimacy in the tools they need. But it's now these manufacturing processes just don't exist anymore. So, I mean, the whole thing, like I would like Graphlex parts to become Graphlex cameras again, but I'm not trying to to all like sully the name of Graphlex. It's we're, we're in this this time where, I mean, the same way that Packard Shutter Company still exists, it's, yeah, they're, they're running the exact same patents and everything, but it's a newfound market for all of this. And not even a market, just more a community around all of these things, you know? And some and some new use cases, which is why yeah. I'm sawing them up and changing them around because <laughs> I, I want to do different things with them, but I still like the basic, uh, basic universal, starting point very much and 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 there's, there's enough of those around you right. know uh, you don't have to feel bad about cutting one of those up because there were thousands made at this point and we're not right. running out yet so it's a moving target so the first thing i thought of with this three by four was go put a two by three holder on it because i've got they're smaller and lighter the roll film holders are smaller and lighter mm -hmm. now i'm hesitating and thinking about sticking with four by five and adapting it because i have big four by five roll film holders as well because there's this instant film four by five back yeah yeah <laughs> and yeah, that's that really appealing you know the, the instax wide back would be perfect on the three by four camera like that would mm -hmm. be an amazing combination 
And so, you know, it, you, I'd like to figure that. I think I'm going to go that way, actually, because it's still a pretty big camera. It's not, I'm not going to handhold it. It's going to be a tripod camera. Um, but there's all these wonderful side effects of having these long bellows. It's basically an instant macro. You know, you put any lens you put on here, yeah. you can zoom way out and, you know, and do close up work. And there's all this great stuff that you get with bellows. So I'm going to keep, keep that intact and just try and adapt roll film to it. And you've also, I mean, I think a big part of this too is that you've realized, which is how often that I get a question of, oh, like what SLR should I shoot? Like what can't, what Graflex, what this and that. And the thing is you've realized the exact tools that you need. And and part of that is that you don't need to have a rangefinder included in the system. Like, so, which gives you that ability to just like, okay, yeah, I need macros bellows and like screw the rangefinder, just rack them all the way out like they can do. Um, yep. Yeah, and also if you're using system lenses on it, which I am doing, the the thing with the system lenses, like this is a, um, I've got a uh, Bronica S mounted on a Nikon, but it, it also I also mounted on the three by four camera. It all you have to do is mark your infinity spot, rack the bellows out, and then you can use the helical, which is super handy because it has a scale for scale focusing. And instead of having to, you yeah. know, with a Graflex, you have to screw a little plate in just the right place and you got to change it. You've got to sit down with a jeweler's loop and change stuff when you change lenses. But if you put a system lens on the Graflex, you just need a mark on the on the rack and you can zoom out. And then you, you immediately have scale focusing as an option. So that's, a, I, that's I really think it's, handy. It's, <laughs> I think it's worth noting that, uh, especially like it's like a graphics, a speed graphic with like a calart rangefinder on the side of it can be calibrated to obscenely shallow depth of field. Like, uh, like in factory, you can you can calibrate rangefinder to be far more accurate than the manufacturer ever intended it to be. And that's, I mean, that there's something. If you're going to, it's it's knowing your limitations and limitations of of the tools you're using too with the camera of knowing like how refined it can be. And so when you have to go in and set those infinity stops when you're really trying to push f two out of a lens or f two point three something, um, that also the fact that you can use an f two point eight lens that's a system lens that's not a four hundred dollar Buell or something like that, exactly. trying to get that shallow depth of field, and then also hoping that it's all agreeing with your focal plane too at the same time. Yeah, I mean, this is this is this is a Soviet or no, it's a Ukrainian lens, beautifully made, fifty dollars, yeah. fifty dollars, and it's an incredible. Yeah, object, exactly. You know, it's uh, and it has all the all those advantages of being able to. I like being able to scale focus. That's how I hand hold. I don't mess around with, you know, trying to focus through the ground last. If I'm going to use the camera handheld, I'm just going to stop down and guesstimate the distance, which I'm pretty good at after being, a you know, 30 years of fabrication and carpentry. I'm pretty good at judging distances. And if you stop down enough, it's super easy, especially with the wider lenses. There's just no trouble in it at all. Um, it's it's less fuss. And then you don't have to think about anything except the, the framing and timing, uh, which is a huge advantage. I find even with SLRs, the stupid freaking prism in the middle is a terrible distraction and you're always worrying about it and you don't need to you just stop down a little <laughs> you, you can forget about that and think about your your photography <laughs> anyway well that's why i mean part of why i like when i shoot a, a graphic i get like a view camera it's going to be on a tripod i'm going to be focusing through the ground glass because i'm not not the type of person who wants to dedicate all the time to reading a refinder just like off the camera and have it be off again and but part of what i love with like the big large format slrs is that 
you still get that the view camera looking down a huge, huge viewfinder without any distractions going on in it. Yeah. But you're you're and that's but still it's when you're shooting a camera like that, there are some people that do awesome active photography with them. Um like the guy who's doing the F1 racing photography. But yep. still, I mean, when you're sitting there having to adjust tensions, adjust the shutter curtain, and then realize that reader for a different scene, crap, I need to be on a completely different on the whole thing, and also trying not to burn frames at the same time. Like, oh, did I remember the dark slide? Um, it's it's still a, a convoluted process and kind of slow. Um, so it's right. I but you can you can get past all that. Now, when it comes to hand yeah. holding cameras, Ethan's Ethan's cameras are really the way to go. Super lightweight. Absolutely. You can use them with ground glass, but really, really, they're ideally used scale focus and those things um, really are practical to handhold. I don't feel that way about my Graflex, even though my dad took amazing photographs and holding it a crown <laughs> graphic. It's still, it just, I don't relate that much to that uh, way of using it. Um, it well, that's it, also, that was feels... the era where you were, uh, that was the era where you were sent out with uh, one film holder with two sheets of film, and if you couldn't get the entire story on the two sheets, you weren't worth the fault. Well, he had <laughs> yeah, and you had to walk to school uphill in the <laughs> snow both ways. <laughs> So one of one of his best stories was about having to take aerial photographs of a fire in in uh, Louisiana, and they they got he got stuck in the in the passenger seat of a two seater Piper with no door on the passenger side, and the pilot went and banked as steep as he could over the over the scene, and my dad was holding his crown graphic with both hands, hanging by the seatbelt, <laughs> pointing straight down towards the uh. <laughs> and and again he had to change the film holder. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and the whole thing that gets like, into a whole you know, in, a, in a plane with you know going 60, 70, 80 miles an hour with with the door open, <laughs> and you know it's actually you guys should uh, <laughs> maybe I'll post up sometime in in, in the the camera group. Uh, it you see it a lot come through with uh, graphlexes that were modified in the nineteen fifties through the nineteen sixties uh, to become air photography cameras. Like when you could buy an air camera surplus, but they were still kind of spendy. Uh, Right. Every one to modify. Um, you know, there's there's some great cameras that come up that are, like have these huge like aerial viewfinders tashed off the front of them. So my my grandpa was a uh, Navy photographer in World War II, which he really loved. I think it was the first time in his life he could eat everything he wanted, and uh, he had a bull of a watch that they had used to modify to time making maps over like Norfolk, Virginia, lived on an aircraft carrier and just made maps hanging out of planes and told me some funny stories about standing on the control cables uh, while popping out of the back of, I don't know what type of plane, but uh, he said it went into a nosedive and the pilot used every expletive to get him off, <laughs> off the control lines. And uh, yeah, I think there were a lot, a lot of people around World War II using Graflexes and uh, aerial cameras and all sorts of things, just like making maps on four inch wide roll film. We did not have satellites. Well, well uh, the crazy thing is um, Graflex history went through World War II. Um, there was a whole thing of the cameras, I don't know explicitly how it goes, but uh, the cameras were supposed to be kind of recycled back into the public, but also not recycled back into the public. And what you got were a lot of cameras that ended up into civilian hands that really shouldn't have been in civilian hands in the list. Because um, the thing was, they, Graphlex didn't want to lose all of their business from all of these servicemen coming home, wanting the cameras that were shot and are still, I mean, 
1945, these are very popular. Um, but so you have a like all war type sea graphics, a lot of them that had Macy military service that really shouldn't be around. And those are the same cameras that you see that like people are sneaking home or by like when they really shouldn't have been. And those are the ones that also turn into aerial cameras. It's I don't know, it's it's really fascinating stuff to see modifications that were done when these cameras were still considered relevant. I mean, socially relevant to, to the actual professional photography going on when they were expensive and it was you gotta have some balls when you're gonna cut up a, a camera back in 1950 you know <laughs> yeah but th that that was still much more of an era of people who did that kind of thing on a routine basis my grandfather my father's father was a was a test pilot in world war one and flew biplanes and he he was not necessarily trained as a mechanic but he tore down and rebuilt the engine of every plane he flew pretty much every time he flew it because it, even the engines were experimental at that point and you wanted to know for sure it was going to work i have one of his uh manuals for uh, hispano suiza aeronautical engines and when you read through it it has beautiful copper plate illustrations and but when you read through it you basically boils down to this is how it works you should change the oil a lot and you're pretty much on your own. <laughs> like, there's yeah, there's yeah. very little practical information in there because they didn't really know what was going to happen when you fired one of these things up and, you know, flew off into the air with it. It, it, it was just all in a big experiment. Well, that's actually, <laughs> uh, it's even uh, every time someone finally gets a, a shutter tester behind one of their graph flexes and they're like, oh, my shutter can only do one five hundredth of a second. It says one one thousand, but one one thousand's not there. We didn't have digital shutter testers in 1902 when the curtain system was designed, and the curtain system didn't change until the 1960s. Like, it was the same system. They were just, well, when you have, uh, the, the first SLR ever made was for bird photography. When you have your average ISO film was like less than ISO 20, I, a 1 1,000th of a second shutter speed is half impossible. Like, when are you ever going to need it? It's like, hey, just go wide open. This baby does 100, uh, 1 800th dependably this is a this is a nice shape um all the shutters are close enough to the advertised i really speed like the graphics pace. get really close i like the speed pace, the pacemaker pacemaker system a lot because it's just bone simple you can actually read the, the number yep. of the shutter speed right on it and also they pared down the speeds yeah so instead of a char an entire chart which i that's that's also one of the things that you see is is it's graph locks not cop graph locks not copping out that their product isn't accurate, but they start to get more real with with the shutter speed arrangement. So yeah, instead of having one like one tenth to one one thousand by uh, one tenth of its like little increments, which really don't, especially today uh, when all these these springs are so exhausted, those tension adjustments really don't do as much as they used to. But what are there's my shutter speeds? There's the real speeds. <laughs> Uh, so, and that's all but, I do. <laughs> no, but, when, when, oh, okay. You're a, you're a little bit blurry on that. Okay. Uh, For those uh, listening at home. There we go. Yeah. So I have a piece of white tape with each of the real shutter speeds written on it. And I can tell that, you know, it's always a little slower than what it says on the camera. And, and it so, looks like 44 and what, read the numbers. I, I, I don't think we can. So this camera has these shutter speeds, 24th of a second, a 40th, a 94th, a 200th, a 340th, and one 814th. And that may sound uh, a little too accurate, but this thing's extremely consistent. And, you know, using an old style light meter, it's very easy to just move your finger along to where the real shutter speed is and read off the accurate, accurate uh, aperture. 
And with the film I use, that's probably far more accurate than I need. But uh, it the reason works great. Behind the, the, the reasoning behind the accuracy, in, like, so speed graphics notorious, you can get a speed graphic to, to accomplish one one thousandth of a second, but you end up losing a low end of speed. And, and part of it is uh, consistent manufacturing. Uh, when they started to mass produce curtains at 2,000 per batch, um, all of their apertures are identically sized. But when you when you get to like a camera like uh, like the older uh, SLRs, you have instead of the curtain moving mostly in a straight line from one roll down to the other roll with two little lighter, there's little rollers that support those and don't do anything um, in a pacemaker speed graphic and all other graphics or graphics. Um, on the SLRs, you have uh, the arrangement changes a lot, so you you get more of a tra uh, trapezoid shape, mm -hmm. and that trapezoid starts to in induce a lot of drag. And actually, there's if you watch a of an SLR shutter curtain fire in like slow motion, like uh, like high speed footage, uh, you'll see the without the back on the curtain actually ejects itself out of the camera slightly, wow. <laughs> and it's it's contacting. But yeah, right. so it's it's there's there's all of this really specific geometry that goes into it. But what you get is SLRs just have too much drag going on. And then also, if you would actually get out a ruler and measure your one eighth inch aperture on an SLR, usually you'll find it might be one eighth inch in the corner, but in the center of it, it might be one quarter inch. Right. So. Yep. When when right. that's your your entire after it's doubling the the speed, you know. Sure, so. and that it's it, it and it's doing it locally at the center of the frame as well. So that's a little odd. So you yeah you'll you'll get vignette and, and other weird things right. going on. Well, I'm super happy with the pacemaker shutters. The the two that I have there in good condition. They're consistent, which is the main they're thing. They're use they're very useful shutter speeds. Um, and I find that I don't think I'm going to want. It, you know, unless it's a completely dead calm situation and I'm using bulb, I'm going to be using faster shutter speeds with this camera. It has a pretty violent shutter action. And very often yep. I'm photographing things that the wind is blowing and, you know, all of these things are going on that the fast shutter speeds are actually quite useful. And, and that tends to be what I use on them. You should see how many questions I've gotten before asking, uh, What's wrong with my focus? It, what, what what's causing this this blurriness? I'm getting a double image, in in it, and it's your camera shaking. Yeah, it's on a tripod and it's shaking. Right. Like if you manage to hold the thing still enough, you're not going to get a double. But trying to shoot one thirtieth of a second on a camera that's rocketing around the whole time, you know. Yeah, and that's one reason I didn't even bother trying to rig a, a cable release on the Speed Baby. It's I use the built-in shutter button, and I just shoot fast enough that it's not a problem. Um, and you know we have fast films and fast lenses on it, so what's the you know what's the big deal? Yeah. <laughs> it works fine. I mean, and that's that's where again, you, you, it's it's what's crazy is it, that's a camera system whose shutter was designed in 1902 and it lived until 1973. You know, like it was still being produced to the bitter end, and that's the, the whole speed system being dated from 70 years prior. Um, well, in a totally different world, the world of slow film when you couldn't get fast emulsions. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. It's hard to imagine what they were doing with it, you know, with the high shutter speeds back then. They did have faster lenses, but those were designed for ease of focusing. You weren't actually supposed to use them wide open, you know. Yeah, well, and then also you end up with projection lenses that were trying to be fast just because of their whole nature of things. And sure. that's that's a whole, well, it's, and even the world of, of single lens reflex cameras, um, they weren't considered professional press cameras until about the 1920s. Um, because the first 20, 30 years, uh, the first SLR, the first large format SLR as we know it, not not a 
a camera obscura or a hinged mirror camera um, with with the actual traditional SLR. So the first SLR was built in uh, 1898, um, and the guy who built it stole a few other people's patents. Uh, William Fulmer found the camera at a, I think it was at a trade show or something, um, or saw it being demonstrated, and he's like, I really like that. Can I steal your idea? Stole the whole idea, made what we know as the Graflex, the, the true namesake, uh, that came out in 1902. And the story goes that uh, William Fulmer traded the first Graflex for that guy's camera, and now that camera sits in the George Easton Museum. Um, right. And, and they... And those were cameras that were being bought by basically artists and portrait photographers. That's who was. Yeah, it was it was bird photos and birds. You needed one yeah. thousandth of a second to, to take photos of birds. But also the single lens reflex, <laughs> which is a which is kind of an awkward contraption if you're a reporter. You know, it it's. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. And it's too, it's too much also, faffing about for your average press photographer. There was also a whole school of cameras designed for theater photography, and but those had to be quiet, and they had the early fast lenses were on those. Uh, for taking pictures in, the, you know, by gaslight in an opera house, <laughs> right? Yep. Yeah, that too. That's, I mean, what you look at, at the necessities for some of these things, and it's, it seems very normal today that yeah, I want a fast shutter speed, I want fast lenses, I want fast this and that. But like back in 1910, why do I need this? I don't need a fast shutter speed. Like this is absurd. Who will, who would want that kind of a thing on this camera? Um, yeah. And, and like, why wouldn't you make this? You had the technology back then. Speaking of absurd and why wouldn't you make it, uh, Graham, we, we have heard a little bit about Nick's dream cameras and wacky ideas and just because things. If you were to build a camera right now, I want to give you, uh, I, don't, I don't want you to give away too many like uh, trade secrets or upcoming projects, but um, what, what would your dream camera kind of look like if you were building one for yourself? It would probably be based on a four by five format. Um, so it would be essentially a four by five SLR. Um, but there's a few different styles and, and Graflex never really cared about this, um, but short mirror distances, um, <laughs> cute, cute little series B. Um, but so so there's, a, I, I don't know if, if any of you have are aware of the, the compact Graflex. They made them in three by four or three by five postcard format and then also five by seven. Um, and the idea was you were making contact prints off of the format. Uh, those only used until I think the, the late 1930s. They weren't really terribly popular. They made a lot of them. But, and, and so those cameras, what you end up with is a very, very short mirror system that actually will collapse itself inside of the camera. So you can rack the, uh, the bellows all the way back. And it is the three by five, which if it was engineered properly, it would make a perfect four by five image. It does not because the film gate's too small. But if Graflex had seen this back in 1920, which is kind of where my vibe's going with this, it, I don't want to make necessarily anything new. I want to do things in, in the iteration and inspiration of what these factories would have been doing if they had the, the needs that they have today. Um, so the compact Graflex, the idea is instead of having uh, a three by four Series D, which is the ubiquitous Graflex SLR that most people know, um, has the shortest flange, flange distance of around seven and a quarter inches or something like that, which is pretty long for a lens, which is what Nick was saying. Like, you can't get a short lens on those cameras. As much as you want to, you can't. Right. But what they did with with the, the, the compact Graflex is the idea was that you were taking, like, postcard photos. You're doing landscapes. You want wide angle. You're trying to get that, that atmosphere. And so you end up with a three-by-five compact Graflex will accommodate a lens of right under, right over five inches. So that's a significantly shallower lens. 
uh, when you look at other systems like like the Kershaw or uh, Marion Soho, Soho Reflex, Dalmer Reflex, Kershaw, they all were produced under the, the exact same Soho factory in London. Uh, or the yeah, Kershaw patent. So this is a time when when you were manufacturing, you didn't have a little shop like I have. You were renting a space in a much larger factory that produced and had the, the tooling accommodations for you. And like you kind of had to be a pretty business savvy person to get get your foot in the door there. Um, so so places like Kershaw, what, what their systems are is the, the entire mirror box swings backwards as the mirror is lifting up. And the idea is your lens can be much closer than the tip of the mirror actually is. And so your lens comes back into the camera and the mirror is picking itself up and going around the back of the, the lens as it's lifting to the top. So the Which Bronica the Bronica S2 had exactly that mechanism in it. And the 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 Bronica S2 has actually a lot of room behind their lenses. And it and somebody I know just recently was inspired to mount a Leica lens way down inside the barrel of one of these helicopters oh, because on. of that. Um and it worked <clears throat> fine. So that's that's actually a great idea and i have a, a more of a crude approach to that in mind which is just to use a small mirror in other words build your big pharma camera make a little dinky little mirror and i'm yeah, my idea was actually to make it sort of a periscope arrangement that you pull the whole thing straight up to clear the film path and drop it straight down to focus. okay oh uh, so yeah so, so you could make a super shallow camera uh and focus very accurately and then you would frame with a viewfinder separately. And so it's kind of like a giant Barnack arrangement with, with a periscope for focusing. And, and I think that would be so, worth trying. Oh, lens is too far in. This is the exact issue, is this camera collapsed. What let the, the mirror all whip because it's native lens that's on it is too shallow. But- Graham, what, what, what uh, camera are you holding up? This is a three by four uh, Thornton and Pickard with the hood removed. So this goes on. This is a project camera that I showed before with the rotating back. But the what they right. did so is a big. It's a big S, big SLR. Huge, yeah, I, well, yeah, big SLR. Uh, I could show you here. We'll, we'll we'll show you what a big SLR looks like. <laughs> <laughs> this is one where you you can like it's like the old Ford. It's not an SLR. This <laughs> is an SLR. That's not a knife. This is a knife. Yeah. So even like too big to get. Here, I'll, I'll stand up and back away from the camera so we can get a, a size comparison here. So the size of the top. You can um, chop your head off and stick it in there and be room for somebody else. Uh, uh, I actually, I so have a... To be about uh, 10 inches tall, the body of it uh, about 10 inches? That's about uh, a little over a foot. <laughs> so I think it's about 12 okay. and a half inches tall. And, and, um, what, and that's, size film? what size film? Graham Burnett uh, is actually seven and a half feet tall. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, the uh, that's uh, five by seven or whatever the iteration of English version of that is. I'm oh, it's not uh, I, I work in material. I work in good old uh, freedom units, you know. Um, <laughs> no, uh, so you can't. My to, to get back here. My, my ultimate idea with with trying to design my own camera system, and, and this comes into when you're doing like mo most of the, the linkage I could manufacture out of what I already have, but there's, you end up to the bitter end of things where it comes into gearing, like, like cutting clock gears is not a, like that's craftsmanship itself. Like you need to be kind of a, a tool maker on, on a level to be able to do that with some semblance of consistency. So there's like 
more hurdles I do, do need to get over to get to the point, which is my, my I guess the, the one to seven year kind of plan thing. But ultimately what I want is a kind of boutique SLR that is kind of subsized for what we have available. Um, something that can accommodate about a five inch lens, maybe a little shallower if I can make it happen. But then I also want the other option of long bellows extension where I can, if I really feel like it, drop a door down, pull the bellows out up to 12 inches and fit on a long throw lens. Um, which is something that on the compact Graflexes and on the Kershaws, you can't do that. They only go out so far because they're meant to be so small and only accommodate small lenses. So it's kind of like that one, one little very specific camera to do a couple of very specific operations. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to uh, suggest strongly that you get this thing down below uh, 85 millimeters if possible. Um, or make a version that gets below 85 millimeters. It doesn't have to have anywhere near as big a piece of film on it. Um, but well, then you start, to, all... then you start to pull in all sorts of uh, really cool system lenses as another option. So it's a different camera um, because they're not going to shoot on as big a piece of film. Um, but it's but... it's it, part of my my deal with this too, and, and other things I I like is the idea of scalability that. I could take a system and scale it down to a much smaller thing. I mean, exactly. I, ultimately, I would love to have a two by three Graflex variant. Mm -hmm. That is my own manufacturer. I mean, on, on you even a two by three SLR Graflex, you still don't have that short of a flange distance. I think that I think those are only about five inches too, five or six yep. inches minimum yep. flange. Yep. Um, so, which is and that and that's what that's why I saw it speed graphic in half. That's exactly why I did it. And it pushed me in this other direction. But now I'm really getting excited about these lenses because a bunch of these cameras are nobody can deal with them anymore. RB67 lenses are unmatched and, and Pentax 6.7 lenses are unmatched in terms of optics. They're just fantastic. And they're getting cheaper and cheaper because people can't handle the cameras. Um, so there are these amazing optics that are looking for the right camera to use them on. Before I run off to work, Graham, I uh, I did want to ask you to just give us. You've already started on it, but just a little more information about the the the, the basic Graflex uh, uh, shutter design. The the ones, especially that went in. I'm most interested in the ones that went into the pacemaker speed graphics. Um, you already mentioned that the the SLR lens uh, cameras had a different geometry, but. I'm I'm going to be tinkering with some. So the two good pacemakers I have are fine. I just measure the shutter speeds and I work with them and they're consistent. But I have a, a couple older springbacks, a four by five that I got basically as a parts camera and one that uh, Graham Young sent me that's a baby. And they're, they have the old complex shutters with all those adjustments and, and they're usable. Complex. They give me, they give me shutter speeds that work. Um, and I just ignore, I just pick my favorite setup, you know, like set it on D and just use that instead of trying to, yep. you know, fool around with it. But I am curious to know how much is involved in tuning them up or getting the springs to be a little tighter or whatever you can do to make them run better. It, is it a mechanical process, an adjustment process, or is it pretty much a matter of replacing stuff? 
it's uh, it goes on a step, couple different levels of, of uh, getting a, a curtain system to work again. Um, there's it mostly comes into to tuning. Um, either a lot, especially when it's it's slow graph like shutters, uh, as, as the ambiguous term. Um, most of the time, it's that there's enough dirt and grease packed in every little corner of everything that right. it's just not working anymore. And that's why a lot of times people will just purge the system with oil, and usually you can get it working again. The real proper way is you, you pull everything apart, you you disassemble. Uh, so on, on a speed graphic, you have a there's a tension selector mechanism and then uh, an aperture selector mechanism, as I call them. Right. And you, you pull off the the aperture selector and the tension plate. You pull it all off. You which is disengaging them from the curtain's timing. So you have to reset the curtain's position when you put the whole thing back together. And you sit and pop that all apart, clean it all out with degreaser, regrease it all, put it back together. Uh, there's bearing cups on the left side of the camera that you clean out and re-oil to. And then when you're resetting the camera, uh, which this is also something that I've seen depicted in a manual from the 1960s, but this is something that if you were working on a Graflex, you just kind of understood how to tune these things. And there's a really finicky spot that Graflex curtains always bounce when they hit the bottom. Mm -hmm. And and the problem is if the curtain's not set right, the, the rib or the aperture will bounce back up and reopen the curtain and, and expose. So, you, so you'll, you'll end up with bird marks. And and there's all this stuff where you're you're just playing with, with gear teeth positioning. But the what So it's like getting a it, distributor rotor arm back in the right place on your yeah. car, basically. <laughs> and and that being said, when when you look at most, uh, so you said uh, the more complicated version, the which is the, the anniversary or pre-anniversary speed graphics, the ones that have two different plates on the side, they've got a the couple different winders. Right. On a pacemaker, you have that one complete panel with a shutter sync uh, plug-in. Um, they are technically the exact same system. When, when you pull the cover plates off, the the escapement and gearing all technically works the same. You have a little plate that's moving up and down, letting up and it's got a little pin that's stopping uh, another gear from moving. Graflex systems are incredibly simple compared to every other focal plane shutter design. The most complicated part of the Graflex shutter design is that the curtain is so long and so precisely manufactured. Mm -hmm. That's how it all relies on is that the curtain is exactly a certain thickness on every single point. This is why you can't just recode a curtain because you're going to double the thickness and it's going to jam it everywhere. Or uh, sure. What you get is if you're using an incorrect thickness of curtain, the gearing literally will not line up anymore. So you could right. make an identical curtain out of a thinner material, but it's going to roll up way differently. Sure. And it's like, so it's like starting they, they, to roll them at the wrong place. It's the same problem. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah and, and this is when it, when it gets into, uh, yeah, spacing and timing when it comes into film holders. This is why I think it's, it's awesome. Anytime anyone develops like a 120 or 35 millimeter, uh, film advanced system is because there's how much gearing mechanics that go into the back end of that and all the design work. But with with Graflex, what and and so the the Graflex shutter curtain design technically changed a bunch of times. Um, the, the first curtain design that came out with the 1902 um, is mimicking Thornton Pickard's curtain design too. It, it, all these companies were kind of it's it's a variable aperture curtain that has two different sides. So there's a top curtain and a bottom curtain. And depending on how you adjust the curtains tent, the curtain aperture, it will lift it up to the top and then it'll open the aperture up, however. Or if you're on a different system, it'll open it up at the bottom and then raise it all to the top. That's a dual curtain system. I mean, same with like how 35 millimeter camera has an opening curtain and a following curtain. Um, but this is just huge. 
they went through a couple different iterations of this until like 1907, 1908, when they eventually landed on what is uh, like stereographlex, which is something that few people have ever seen. But they decided on that long rolled curtain design. I think it's once their stamping and manufacturing got to a point. And so once they set on, this is how our escapement's gonna look, it's only gonna be three years inside this, the tension, I mean, so the heart of a graphlex system is the whole top is, is the brains of it. You've got a gear that sets all of it, and then the, the top is just a static roller that the curtain rolls down from, and the bottom roller has a big mainspring inside of it that provides the tension, and that tension is locked by the tension selector plate. And so I had this, this design down in probably 1915 and all the manufacturing. I think 1915 was like the, the latest patent date for that. Um, this is why Graflexes went for. This is why uh, in World War One there was a government contract that supplied uh, the U.S. Signal Corps with, um, I believe, two or three hundred different uh, Graflex 3As and then also uh, Auto Graflex 4x5s. Really cool cameras to see. They're they're done up in brown leather and they have a uh, U.S. Signal Corps embossed on the side of them, like absolutely loony. But once I, I think what you see is, um, and, and you see this in, in like firearms design and manufacturing of, of government contract work. And, and you have many different suppliers who are all trying to, to bid for the same contract with the US government. And the government really cares about what's going to be reliable. What is your average guy not going to fuck up or not going to screw up relentlessly? Um, and, and like what's going to be serviceable, what's going to survive combat. And, and so, World War One, I, I think, was really that solidified that the Kirks, these cameras, are like a true design. So in World War Two, government orders a, a ton of speed graphics because it was a proven design that you really can't break them. And when you break a couple things, like you're, you can replace the parts yourself. You can oil them. Um, there's actually oh, I don't have it down here. Um, but I have, uh, I have the military manual for the 4x5 speed graphic in, in 1945, and uh, there's an entire sheet that's got all these little pinpoints of like, oil this, oil this, oil this. And there's actually in the manual, there's even um, the, uh, the destruction instructions. So how to destroy your camera so it does not fall into enemy hands. And it's, <laughs> it's this verbose thing about smashing the flash and, and breaking every part of the camera so it right. can't be stolen. But as if the Germans wanted to speed graphic, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and as, as if they weren't already aware of them and didn't already have access to these cameras the past 50 years. And we're grinding the um, lenses for them and all the rest of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that too. Um, <laughs> no, and, and so I, I think that's that's one of the biggest indicators is is when you see the, the, the military using something like that because the military doesn't always use the nicest equipment or the best or even the most bulletproof, but it's it's like, what's actually gonna, like, what's reliable? And that's why you end up with uh, Graflex cameras that can sit without a single drop of oil or service for seven years. They get into hands today, someone buys them off eBay, throws a couple drops of oil on it, and it'll still work miraculously because the design was bulletproofed back in the 1930s. So you just, know, that's, just, and that's, just, to, yeah. just to confirm something I think you said, it, are you saying that essentially yeah. the primary difference between the old ones and the pacemaker is the user interface rather than the actual interior? Yes. And yes. so in the in the newer ones, are, the, are similar adjustments available inside the camera and they've just basically taken that out of the hands of the, of the photographer? They actually put more adjustments into the hands of the photographer in a weird way. So on a... On say like an ad, the older style speed graphics that have the two different panels on them, to adjust tension on it, you do need to have a specific tool. Um, there are instructions in an old 
manuals and have tool. Um, I'm actually it's a long process, but I'm trying to make tools that that will work on on these cameras, so you don't have to cobble things together with like a spanner wrench. But but you'd need a couple specific tools. You need to know the tension process. But when you get to a pacemaker, once you pop that cover plate off, you do not go in. You can adjust the tension once you pop the cover plate off, and the cover plate doesn't affect anything. Right. When you're adjusting the tension in an anniversary, you're disassembling. You can catastrophically just lose tension if you if your hand slips okay. on a pacemaker. Right. Once you once you pull it off on a pacemaker, there's actually a, there's a little scalloped uh, like pinwheel flower kind of shape thing. It's got four little scallop sides to it. And it's got a set screw and you just back the set screw out a little bit and you turn the little square to a different scallop and you pull the set screw back in. And mm. because of the system, you can't just accidentally lose tension. Like you'd have to pull the whole thing apart physically doing stupid stuff you shouldn't have been doing to actually like lose tension on those. And so they, there's also two springs in, in the bottom of a pacemaker. That's a whole other thing when it comes to their design, but it's, the heart of it, though, did not change. I mean, and this is why the SLRs have completely different looking hardware. But once you actually pull these out and look on the back sides, um, speaking of which, I have uh, I should have enough parts here. <laughs> because, you know, I just got a couple of just a, just a few of these around. So this is this is the heart of, and, and, and you will see this exact same design inside of the pacemakers. They just elongate the whole thing. They add in a couple different stops. There's some flash contacts and, and different things going on. But the, and so this is what it looks like as it looks, your normal looks, anniversary. The, the inside looks like Picasso designed it. Yeah. So and maybe my and, and this is why, and and it's it's the exact same system in. Uh, one sec. All right. Ah. Don't knock everything over first. So, your your speed graphic with the escapement. This thing, you've got one big gear in the back that's moving around, and then there is this escapement that moves up and down, and it's locking at different points. It's it's stopping the curtain from just slipping. Then this is from so nineteen uh, forties speed graphic. Uh, aperture selector component. Now this is off of a 1920s uh, home portrait. So a large, a big five by seven large format SLR. And it is at the heart, the exact same system inside. So uh, we might have to patch some still side by side there. In, uh, I'm not getting the image. Yeah, I, I got I, Yeah, that would be that would be fun. We're going to have to talk again for a long time in pretty soon. Um, I have to go to work now. So I'm really, really okay. glad we met okay. and we got this far. There's, I can see I'm going to end up uh, taking one of these cameras all the way apart pretty soon. So this is really very good for me. Thank you. I am always available for tech support right. for, for the general public <laughs> and everything. If, if you need help, I mean, I, some secrets I won't give away, but if you need to learn how to retention your camera, I'm always here for everybody. That, that's fantastic. <laughs> it's great to meet you. I'll see you guys. So we lost Nick to backhoe operation for the rest of the day. Um, 
but I'm I'm curious to see some of your uh, obviously we can't go through all of them because you've done so much, but some of your build process photos and kind of things that you've worked on. Um, Graham Burnett, do you want to give us a little bit of a slideshow? Yeah, I totally can. Let me uh, let me screen share here. So the what I'm going to start with is going to be. Uh, so this is a good few years back now. I did a a full top to bottom restoration on a five by seven Graflex home portrait. So big big boy SLR. Uh, I couldn't find the before the one before photo I took before it because when gross camera you don't really want a photo of gross camera. It's like I want this to look better. And so this was a that I did for somebody, um, which is, you'll you'll figure out pretty soon when certain parts of work commission. Is my screen sharing right now? Yep. Okay, all right. So this is, I think, the first step of the, this process that I had. Uh, see the, a camera that's wrapped in wet paper towels and then saran wrap. Uh, <laughs> Generally not advisable to store your photographic um, equipment that way. No, no. Uh, so all these cameras were covered with leather back in, in the 20s. And the saving grace of Graflex cameras that were covered in leather is they didn't use synthetic adhesives. They used hide glue. So glue derived from hide and gelatin and all that, um, which is water soluble. And so the best thing is with Graflex, if you do find yourself in a position where you need to remove the leather, this one had leather was rotting off and had been like mouse chewed most of it, so it was completely unsalvageable. Um, was very delicately moisten it, and so this is not a this wasn't sitting here for hours like this or overnight. This was a wash process. I was I was pulling the saran wrap back up, making sure the leather was releasing because if the water leaches too far into the wood, you end up effectively destroying the wood. It, it'll start to crack in spots because the panels were specifically put together and also not meant to get wet. So um, how, long, how so, long a time do you leave it like this? Uh, this was, I think, like 23 minute rounds. Um, and I was on it the whole time. And then uh, the gross part is you have to get a, like a, or like a putty knife and carefully, without damaging the wood too, because now you've got softened wet wood, uh, you have to scrape off the hide glue by hand, um, which is a just absolutely. It, and then you've got hide glue on your hands, and there's rotting leather everywhere. So and it's not it a very pretty process. Thanks. <laughs> makes you want to be a vegan. Uh, hide glue. I, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it smells like other industrial things I've been around that I've, I've learned to, to to like. But you know, it's it, yeah, hide glue's got a got a stench. So this is um, this next photo here is parts removed from from the camera. So I had pulled everything off of the camera because when you're removing leather, you can't have any hardware left. Um, the alternative to this is once you remove that leather, you need to shim underneath all of the hardware, which will I think I will I have photoed later. So this is just a uh, fret standard and some of the mirror box components, etc. Um, and this is what the camera looks like when it's got the glue stripped off of it. Um, and what you're seeing is it looks like it's stained and kind of wet, and that is the remnant glue, which all has to be painstakingly sanded off. Uh, this is the pile of hardware with the original uh, Duco automotive gray paint um, that they used, which got really gross and was also rotting off. Uh, and so my process to go about is then uh, brassing up the whole camera, which on automotive paint, you, you want to use paint stripper 
Pace Trooper really doesn't touch this 1935 um, so it, it ends up becoming a very painstaking hand sanding. And also, when you're sanding all of this stuff, you're trying not to destroy the profiles of, of these sharp edges, these curves, because then it starts to look like someone's been blasting the camera pretty bad. Um, and then once you end up pulling a camera apart and you, you, you pull all this stuff off, you get to sanding it, you start to find, and this is, this is a very common thing to see, what, what I've got up right now is a, a big Jacobs clamp over a... The, the bottom of the, the camera because the camera had obviously been dropped a few times. So well, like the, the leather was holding some of the joints together. Or covering it all up and, and covering up issues that you didn't see until uh, you, you pull the camera apart and you realize the thing is barely hanging on. So so the, the finger groove joints there were mostly separating and letting go uh, a big couple bumps. Uh, Re-glue it, clamp it, and the thing where you'll get into the middle of a project like, oh, I'll finish this up today. And you end up with the, it's like, I need to let loose it and dry for two days before I can do anything again. Um, and then finally, after all that, we got to the process of staining, um, which is, I uh, at this point, probably 35 hours work into the camera um, to get to this point. Um, when you're sanding my <laughs> I thought you I, meant to finish it. I, I'm not a worker by I, I, I'm, yeah. So, and this is this is also usually the part where bumpers will build. It's a common thing that people want to make with cameras. But once you start off, the people like, oh, this thing's great. Like, I can't, can't wait. I've got leather off of it. And then you get into the nitty gritty work of this mahogany is extremely fine grain. When I, I like using a two, uh, like a two or three step stain process. I stain with a dark color, I sand a little bit, and I stain with a light color and you kind of get a popping of the grains. Uh, this is something I, I learned because I, I refinished some instruments before, uh, violin and such, and it's a process you use to kind of pop really beautiful grain. Um, but especially on mahogany, when, when you're using a, a dark stain like this, because I, I personally like darker darker woods uh, when it comes to a camera like this, kind of make it look like a tackle box. Um, you end up with, uh, the scratches are super visible once you start seeing. So, so you'll go through all of this effort of, of work and you'll, you'll get the state on and realize that you have all of these uh, scratches going cross grain in spots that they shouldn't be. And that's a, uh, a big way to denote an amateur uh, refinish job is you'll end up with, uh, with some of the, the camera will be like weird scratches and spots. Um, so woodworking jobs are best left to somebody who could commit hours to it. Now what we're seeing here in this photo is very, very smooth mahogany. And this is part of what I love of that, that whoever picked the panels for this camera, like in the wood shop, was, was picking all the mahogany panels for it, picked gorgeous green. Like this was never gonna be seen by the public. And and uh, especially like on the on the top of it, what you're seeing here is the camera's laying on its back technically. And, and the top side would be the front where the lens is. Um, and, and those are panels that are even covered up by hardware later on, and and it, they're just gorgeous. Um, and now now what we're slowly getting into is the tongue oil process. Uh, this would be about because uh, I'm a fan of oil finishes. I don't like lacquers. I don't like urethanes. I don't like plasticky looking wood. I like oil finishes that kind of keep the texture and grade of things. Um, I think it's especially when you consider that uh, a lot of antiques that we have are refinished in, in oil finishes that last a very, very long time, and they only get more durable with time, too. And you can keep continue applying finishes if it ever scratches. So tongue oil is a kind of like um, like French oil, 
I mean, French oil is a totally different process, but it, that same painstaking hand rubbed, you're going through this, this whole very delicate, it's not just spraying it with lacquer and letting it cure for a day. Um, so the sheen and shininess that you're seeing in this photo is about, I think six or seven layers of tongue oil, which is six or seven days of letting, like one, one layer per day, let it cure and then do another layer the next day. Wow. And so this continues and continues until at the end of it. Also, if you, uh, <laughs> these are old trees <laughs> underneath stuff. Um, lunch trees work great to hold small parts, especially if you know where all the parts go in the end. Um, so this camera slowly went through painstaking process and that I, this is the, the brass out. I mean, when, when you're working uh, on a camera like this, it just kind of gravitate from small thing to small things. So you lose um, but this camera ended up at uh, around, I think, just over 20 layers of tongue oil on most of the wood. Which How many days did that that machine. Oh, that's oh. <laughs> so, so, I mean, uh, in the end, this camera consumed uh, a little over 300 hours of work. Um, is like it's a labor of love uh um just uh the hardware's just sitting on here right now just just getting spectated um, hey hey real quick Graham, same. can you make these photos yeah. like full screen that that'd be better uh, on uh youtube uh, resolution this yes. process reminds me of um what is that japanese lacquering process that'll take like 75 years uh but almost makes something look like plastic <laughs> like plastic <sighs> I mean, French oil is very much the same way where you're, you're, you continue rubbing oil that's constantly evaporating until you have built up this obscene layer of all. And that's uh, when you're working with like an oil finish like Danish oil or tongue oil, it's soaking into the wood mm -hmm. and then you're buffing it off until there's almost nothing left on the surface. And then you let that cure enough to a point where you can throw another coat on that'll soak in and slightly soften the first coat. And it's, you keep building up layer after layer after layer until you end up with a substantial coating. It takes well, at you least do. three coats of I of use uh, two coats of Danish yeah. oil on everything I laser cut just about, and then I'm done. <laughs> you could use about another. Yeah, and, and you know what? Yeah, and that's that's one of those things where you'll see the most the most difference that happens in an oil finish happens in probably the first three coats, where you see it go from bare wood to, wow, it's got some sheen. There's some more depth to the grain, you know, like a, a little bit more luster going on in the wood. And then it takes about another 15 coats before you see the next step of things getting an actual, like a, a really fine. And so these are, which, so this photo is pretty disgusting. This is very grossly uh, a long time ago. But when you end up, uh, uh, so getting back to the wood here, after you put that much time into it, you get a kind of depth to, if you see this, like it, it starts to actually get a near finish, but you get a near finish with the, the grain still. Um, here, that's uh, this is the the focus knob, um, which is the best thing about horticulturists is they didn't use a uh, they didn't use a knob. They used the wooden knobs like on the big studio cameras and studio uh, tripods that and like studio stands that Graphics was making. Um, so so you'll see the same knob on the big Century Studio uh, camera stand. But they're all painted like like the factory. Um, so uh, a little bit. I've got a some of this hardware. So this, this brass thing on on the side of the camera, little nipple thing. Uh, 
this is the point where you start putting hardware on and realizing that it all needs to be shimmed to actually work because the screws can't go in that far. The, the hardware doesn't tighten down because you just removed like two millimeters of leather off the entire camera. Now, the part is the felt. I changed. Um, I, 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 well, the lacquer goes, <laughs> uh, the, the finish only goes so far, but what I end up doing is. You can use corkboard is a big one. Um, I know some people use like uh, acetal or like a like Delrin sheet um, in black, really thin. Um, I'm actually right now where uh, being that I have the tools that I have in my shop, um, my goal definitely now is that I'll be CNCing actual like brass shims for all this stuff, and then I don't have to play with with leather because usually what you do when when you're making a speed graphic into a Woody or an SLR Woody is take a razor blade, cut around all your hardware, leave the lot underneath it. But that introduces a bunch of other problems because that's the same thing of working on the camera unless you have the camera apart. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're not taking all those things apart, yeah. Um, but, uh, so the fun part starts with uh, one, two, and also you can see how shiny this is now. Um, yeah. But uh, the customer's fabric was a, it's called Gone Fishing. <laughs> it's, it's official fishing tackle uh, pattern. Mm -hmm. There is, and and so also the camera goes together in a couple other times. Um, the gloss front, unfortunately, that whole front gets covered up by hardware, so that sheen was something else. Hmm. And and so once you start brassing out a camera and you start trying to strip strip paint off of everything, you begin realizing how brass there really is on one of these cameras. Mm -hmm. And once you start, you kind of can't stop unless you're going to give up. So you can start, uh, so usually what people do is they'll take the aperture selector plate off, they'll leave the whole back. But for a camera like this, part of what I wanted to do, part of what the customer wanted was, let's do the whole camera up in beautiful wood, beautiful brass. And so it's pulling off a, <laughs> a number of parts, that, like things you didn't think of. And then you get done with spending 25 hours putting out a part to, to a finish, uh, I don't do a a full long brass because you can't repair that. Um, you do about a four-aught steel wool kind of brush, and that way, if the customer would ever have to refinish the brass themselves or if they scratch it or something, you can go back in with four-aught steel wool and, and blend that back in. It's the same the same reason why I like tongue oil is if you scratch tongue oil, you hit it with a little four-aught wool, do another layer, layer of tongue oil. Um, there a photo of this. Then keep going. Notice there's no screws yet because this is still the point where uh, I have not brassed out all like screws that are on the camera. And then uh, uh, something that you might be familiar with is the wonderful world of bellows making. Hmm. <laughs> and For sure. And the part you always got to do is, is is making the uh, the primary set out of paper and seeing if your design actually works. You can see in back here this one is uh, crumpled up as I was trying to do the test fold. And I'm immediately realizing my geometry was all very, very wrong, um, which is a very normal thing for any maker, in my opinion. Um, and you see this with uh, the the patents I was releasing back in 1915. They made a lot of patents for things that physically don't work when they become a real object. They look great on paper, but they just can't exist in the real world. I mean, I think um, sometimes they so will is, patent things that 
intentionally the geometry shown in the patent is not the exact geometry of the thing. Like I copied a Leica shutter uh, in 3D printing using a lot of like the same geometry from the patent. And it wasn't until I started taking them apart that I realized like they don't use a pin in a disc, they use a slot in a disc and it just works much better. But like, it's so that you can't just read the patent and knock them off in 1913 or whatever. You gotta buy one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's yeah, and that's, that's uh, there's and that's like, well, like some of the things that you'll see when you start actually like digging through the, the real patent information, which like gotta love that there's there's things like Google Patent Search mm -hmm. database um, that you can you can go look up all this public material. Um, but what you end up seeing too is they weren't exactly patents to make a product; they were patents to force other people from not making a competing product. So Graphlex was patenting things left and right to keep other US manufacturers and designers from patenting similar things. Um, there's there's a couple different like hood designs that Graphlex made, but they didn't use for 10, 15 years, and it was just to keep everyone else from using the same the same design. So uh, uh, to, to the picture I've got up right now, um, I'm a fan of the school of uh, using tape to, to lay out your pattern um, for doing bellows. So tape them all down, and then peel them all back, uh, Spray your glue. And and, this is I got the uh, the cutout. What was that? And anybody who's uh, you know driving or is unable to listen at this point, um, uh, you really if if you're at all interested in in bellows making, this is worth uh, taking some time and going to our YouTube channel. Yeah, it's a particularly good process slideshow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is this is the process I used to feel a little bit more secret about. Um, it was kind of one of those things where like, I felt like, oh, I found this information for myself, but there's so many makers at this point who are making bellows. And honestly, I hate making bellows. Like they're fun. I will do them. I, I've made plenty of them, but like, I just make a bellows is a delicate process. It's something I really only want to do if I have to do it. And it's unprofitable. Um, it's not, and I feel exactly the same way. But, and, and, but it's also really nice to see that like, like you'll see in this photo that I've got up right now, I've got, uh, the, the four sides of the bellows cut out and, and they're laid down with uh, strips of masking tape over the top, like clean release uh, painter's tape. Um, and underneath that, I've, I, I've already got it in this stage. It's, it's the first, my outer of the bellows is glued down to the, the ribs of the bellows. That, and the back is a can of Super 77 spray glue. And, uh, and it looks like the, um, the fabric is like a... Uh, a flower print dress from maybe 1915. Um, <laughs> so did you go to a uh, vintage store and uh, and take a dress apart? Or also, all of Graham's weights for holding it down look like yeah. camera lenses. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I'll flip back to this. Uh, you yeah. have uh, two different uh, throwaway Buell projection lenses. Uh -huh. There is a delineoscope lens, um, which is a terrible lens. Don't ever buy delineoscope lenses. That's a PSA. Uh, then the other lens is a process lens from, um, uh, I think they make semiconductors at that factory. It's a family member worked for whatever factory some guy gave him a lens and he dumped it on me. It turns out it's worthless, but it weighs about two or three pounds and it's great for using as paperweight. Um, <laughs> no, the, uh, so, so the fabric you're talking about that looks like, like a vintage flower dress. It's actually, uh, it is oh, this, like oh, light with, uh, yeah. with, with its, um, uh, fishing lures, fly fishing lures, print, and all different. They're in, in yellow and red, and and all this crazy stuff. And essentially, looks like a like a pair of boxer shorts, is what I think. 
Yeah. Um, looks like like you pulled someone's pants down. Was that um, a customer also, request? Also, please note. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, the the customer was the one who actually uh, he went to a fabric store and went and dug for some stuff. We we agreed on a couple of colors. We wanted something kind of loud because. Why are you going to spend all the money refinishing a camera if you're not going to make it some bit unique? It doesn't have to be something that like is going to be resellable for him to retail. Like, it was. It's not a camera that he's looking to dump off on eBay or anything. So it doesn't need to be a an acceptable color. It's something that he liked. And honestly, when when you see the camera in the end, it kind of looks like a tackle box. Um, good. Also, PSA: always wear a rest if you're using any sorts of adhesives. Mm -hmm. uh, this is especially end up working. Windows open in the background too, and I'm separator. Um, at this point, I, I don't mess around with not wearing a respirator when I'm dealing with any any sort of hurtful VOCs. All right, so this is the camera very, very slowly coming back together. The bellows are being, the bellows got formed. I've got stuff kind of laid out. This is the bellows being mounted. This is not the cleanest work to really see the behind the scenes of, but this this was never clean. When you, when you you're tearing apart the camera this little anyway. None of it was very clean behind the scenes in the first place. Um, so like like the front flange, this is uh, the front of the bellows are kind of a little, almost haphazardly looking cut trimmed off. But that all gets covered up with uh, felt. And this is a showing the absurdness of the pattern. Um, a little forwards here. Starting to get the up. This is the front standards back on the camera. Um, and Ooh, the, the bellows inside of this. I didn't have a good photo of it. What was that? I think that uh, that the presentation. Okay, now uh, I got an update on the um, uh, on the bellows being inside the camera. There we go. It was just slow enough. Am I? Is, is it? Hey, so my my have a question be, about this. Slowly, life is distant, um, but one of. Yes. One of the issues I've had in bellows making, and I've actually talked to Lucas Landers quite a bit about materials for this, is that um, a lot of times original bellows were paper or sort of book binding cloth, something that was very thin, although light tight. And so I, I build bellows almost exactly yes. like you do, right? An outside protective layer, some ribs, although I use a laser cutter, which saves me millions of hours of, of mm -hmm. cutting uh, patterns and then I use like an internal layer and that sandwich is actually like pretty thick and so if you challenged me let's say to make a deer dwarf bellows well I could make a bellows that would work perfectly the camera would never fold up with the materials that I'm using um, and and I wonder if one they were just using thicker bellows back then they probably were using something like leather uh, or you had a similar struggle, like trying to figure out how to make a bellows that not only would work, but would fold up inside of the camera. And we're actually going to, uh, so the next part, the, the photo that I've got up right now, if it's looking for you guys, is because uh, you guys like drafts of things. I, so the photo is intentionally not showing all of my actual uh, real notation on, on dimensions because that's proprietary secret. Especially when you when you get this far involved mm -hmm. in the camera, it, dimensioning this stuff is an art on, on its own. But what you're seeing is, and, and this is part of making that I like and I and I do enjoy. Uh, especially when I when I went through high school and I got to take a machinist class, my my same teacher who taught me to use a lathe and a mill also taught drafting class. So I, I took a real drafting class like by hand. I also did take a computer assisted drafting class where we worked on CAD, like old CAD. Um, so it's, it's funny when, when Fusion 360 is 
a mind blower now compared to the cab that I learned on. Um, but but it's none of no computer software is a replacement for actually getting things, getting out a pencil, paper, or ruler by hand and measuring stuff. Because that's you're exploring the design that you're you're making at that point. That's that's what I like. If you start to see the real physical things, and when, especially when it comes into bellows and hood making, when you have those extra thicknesses and you have certain joints and, and dimensions that, yeah, you can measure it, and it, like yeah, you, you got the dimension off of what you're doing. But there's so much of the the practical sense of like actually trying to make it happen. And I think part of what what you hit on too is there's we're at a lack of, uh, like I can manufacture some hard components and some soft components for for the stuff that I have, but th those materials, like like the shutter curtain material I use is a very, very specific material, um, has some extremely specific properties to it. And and the same thing goes, it's the industry for why that material is being made really changed from how it was 50 years ago. And the same way that, that the leather and other sorts of coverings that we were using for Graflexes and, and for bellows and stuff for a ton of years, those just aren't being manufactured or sold to the same industry anymore. Um, specifically, uh, the, the pattern of leather that is on Graflex is, uh, it's Moroccan. It's not leather from Morocco. It is called Moroccan. It's, it's, uh, a, a small pebble pattern leather and it's embossed technically in a factory. The, the last embossing dies that ever existed were thrown out years back. And technically you just can't not, you literally cannot get that same pattern leather anymore because no one has the embossing dies to do it. And the same way that when you get into, to like bellows used to be made out of leather because there were mills actually skiving leather that thin and, and stretching and, and making leathers that thin. And, and uh, I, I have the leather here from <clears throat> the aircraft upholstery shop in town. And one of the, the great things about it, that is they have an industrial skiving machine that can skive entire hides down to the thinness for bellows. So I have a lot of leather that is the technically correct thickness, which is usually really hard to get your hands on. And that's why these days it's called bookbinding leather. Um, yeah, I mean, no matter how hard I try, it. I have not been able to find leather in that thickness. That is no, and that's tight. that's why. I mean, for for my own purposes, it's also one of those things where I yeah, I could strive to do something like that, but when it comes down to reliability's sake, like bellows and hoods are never going to last forever anyway. I mean, we're replacing them on these cameras that are already they were dying 30, 40 years ago. You can find vintage photos of of press photographers in the 1950s and 40s with the leather falling off their camera already and, and stuff blowing out. Like this, these were soft components that were only meant to last about a decade, decade or two. And so for me for right now and my process and things like what in lieu of better quality materials, use what you know is reliably good and what's going to work. And that's why we have uh, stuff like like BK5, that, that blackout material from, from Thor Labs, which is, that stuff is nearly as cheap as it is, but then also you can buy it in huge quantities to actually cut out of, which if you try and compare that to any sort of a, a th thickness of leather, I mean, there are there are uh, suppliers and retailers out there where you can find extremely specific leathers that will do these jobs, but they're not cheap. You're, you're spending $700 for a quarter of a hide mm -hmm. just because it is a certain mill spec. Um, so I just flipped the photo over here to, this is the cutout panels. So, um, so every time that I, I make like a pattern like this, the, the full paper pattern that you saw where it was all drafted out, I still have that, that's hanging up in my shop. Um, what you see here is a transfer. Um, I go through, I take a piece of paper, I, I take my, my, my pattern, my main pattern, and I stick a second piece of paper behind it and I take a little uh, like a scratch all or a punch. And you sit and punch out every little corner of everything. 
and, and you make a tick and that way um, transfer punch. yeah yeah so, so you have a transfer of the whole thing that at that point you just put the lines together cut it all out this next photo is the pressed together hood in its in its bare form is this loading for you guys yeah okay good um we'll continue here that's after it's been trimmed down a little bit um and then boom, boom there we go it's kind of finally sitting up on, on <laughs> and it it's great it, it's a little it, it looks like especially when you have the camera here on the birds how See, dare I'm, you make bright colored cameras i'm i'm looking at that and i'm thinking of how much better that would have been if it was just orange <laughs> <laughs> Which is of it's, course. It's funny because this. Yeah. Go ahead. This. I mean, I, I, you, I posted photos of this camera when it was all done, and you should have. How many people are like, "Oh, that's so gross. Why, why would you do that, that thing?" And it's, you know, what? like, you're not the dude who paid for it. The person who paid Look, for man, it. Look, man. For is, everybody also, on Petapixel who tells you to go kill yourself, you make two sales. So it's yeah. probably good. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and you got to look at a camera like this too. When, when the camera is around 80, 90 years old, it already had been dead in life. Like, it was, when I received it, it was almost destined for a dumpster. Um, like, it was that gross. It smelled It was rotting. It had, like, it's the thing pulling stuff apart in your family, like, piles of dead bugs and rat feces and stuff. And so a camera like this, yeah, it's loud. Like, the bellows and hood are loud, but the bellows and hood are also replaceable. The heart of what, what went on there is I spent an obscene amount of time making sure working like like there's there are exactly square corners and, and contours to the box on graph like this and amateur reach jobs that you'll see you'll send these square corners down to round point and that that is irreparable damage that's something where if, if you're someone appreciate that got refit the, the the quality that determine a three hundred dollar wood finishing job job given not charging here is is i mean essentially what a forty thousand dollar camera job would cost because that's that's what happens when you stick 300 hours of work into something to get up to a point hmm. i'm gonna pop forwards here uh what's the shutter curtain um these are the two curtains side by side that i've got up on here so the other biggest part of refinishing this camera is like yeah you could take a dead camera and refinish it but can you make a shutter curtain for it and so on the left, we have the completely rotten shutter curtain that is mostly stiff at this point. And on the right, we have a brand new, very soft supple curtain. Continue. This is a, uh, I believe, a 4 by 5 curtain sitting on top of a brand new 5 by 7 curtain to see the sheer difference in size. Wow. A uh, 5 by 7 home portrait curtain is right around six and a half feet long, tip to tail. Which is also why people are like, I can buy some, buy some shutter fabric online and I'll make my own shutter curtain. And it's like, yeah, shutter curtain material is cheap when you only need six inches of it. It's not cheap when you need mm -hmm. six and a half feet by nine inches wide to cut from. Mm -hmm. um, and then also just how enormous these apertures are. Uh, this is more close to the end. And just ah, here, here are my, my... Uh, just a uh, technical on the shutter curtain. Um, are you piecing together multiple yeah. pieces or are you putting that out of one single um, one single piece of that fabric? I, or if, I, that, I, if that's proprietary, just tell me that. Shut up. Oh, no, no, no. I can totally, totally, totally tell you about yeah. that because 
Uh, my, my goal when it comes to shutter curtains is to try and produce the closest real replacement that you can get. Uh, my shutter curtain ribs are I are nearly identical to what was being produced in about the 1920s when uh, the, the finish on them changed. Like, so my, my goal is to make a perfect recreation of a Graflex shutter curtain. And when like a curtain, uh, so so this is cut from a very long roll. I, I buy bulk shutter curtain material on a big roll. Uh huh. Okay. It comes huge, and it's cut from a, a long roll. So part of this is when like that, you have the various different apertures, which are all four different cuts per side, and this is all handmade. This is nothing that you can just drop on a laser cutter and have it cut out. Because um, it also comes in as you could you could make a pattern to do that on a laser cutter, but every individual camera you would have to readjust that pattern because all these cameras when you get to the internals change just a little bit by just mm -hmm. a little bit so a curtain like this is hand cut six and a half feet long four different apertures in this in this camera and they're all hand cut so i have a a couple of curtains around here where you end up uh, you, you get a little too happy with with a razor blade and you make a cut the wrong way and you have to throw the entire curtain away or you, you gotta turn it into nikon curtains curtain on <laughs> Yeah, well, or, or actually, what I do with them is I just keep them as patterns because then for myself, I have a, yeah. But it's, no, they're, they're a, a whole a whole thing. There's people that try and do the, there's some homemade shutter that someone was making trying to, to attach curtains together, but also the sheer amount of tension and force inside of one of these cameras is wild. Like like on a, on a speed graphic, like, yeah, you can move it, but when you get to a five by seven, it is kind of the the logical end of of how big the system can get before you do have dual curtain systems in a, in a five by seven work better than one single long roll curtain and it's that inertia thing um it's it's uh, something i had to deal with and, and learn and, and it's not at all fixable but every home portrait ever made will throw its curtain against the back of the, the camera so every home portrait ever designed can technically destroy itself and there uh a weird thing i would have to show a video for that i don't have that queued up right now but um the, the biggest part of a, a graphics or home portrait is usually you know graphics is having the one eighth inch aperture three quarter inch aperture and and you cycle that you drop them but then there's the big open aperture and that's how you do your bulb time setting or or your long exposure on a home portrait they added an extra little mechanic in there where you can use that big O open aperture as an actual shooting aperture. And what it does is it disengages any of the stops from the, the aperture selector and it drops, drops the curtain from one end to the other. So you can cock the camera all the way to the top aperture, which is one quarter inch on these. Uh, so six and a half feet of curtain, press the shutter release and have six feet of curtain rocket by in front of you, um, which is so extremely loud and extremely violent. A four frame multiple exposure at different uh exposure times oh my god i want one of those it's it's tweaked slow speed so the idea is you go from a, a camera that can only do one tenth of a second or one fifteenth of a second down to a camera that can do one second one full second to uh -huh. one and a half depending on on adding the extra apertures this okay. was like part of the patent was that oh you can you can add extra apertures. like you can wind up to more apertures and run all three apertures in front of the the film plane uh-huh but this is one of those designs that works really well on paper, but physically what you get is a camera that's, so if you take the back off of a home portrait and fire it, what you get is a complete arc. It's it's like a semicircle of the curtain, ejects itself out one roller, makes an arc, and then gets sucked back into the bottom. And it is one of the scariest things to ever watch. Um, 
so here's here's some uh, I'm I'm showing uh some like glamour shots right now of the uh, oh, yeah. how absurd the pattern is. Stay, and stay all the beautiful photos, by the way. Yeah, yeah. we can stay on that. Stay, uh, and the reason why I'm asking you to stay on that frame is, is one of them, it, it's taking a little bit of time to load, and this one loads okay, okay. up, and, yeah. and we've got, it, we're, we're showing the detail, um, and yeah, okay, so, so yeah, so maybe that's not the ugliest fabric in the world. Uh, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> so, uh, there's a, and, and for those of you, you who don't know, there's a, there's a whole Minnesota, uh, uh up north fishing culture cabin type of thing that this <laughs> yeah you got so it. well um so uh so yeah. uh, all right that whole i mean we we have uh we've got the boundary waters up here right. the mississippi river and then and so there's a lot of uh, especially being this far up north where i am part of living up here is like like the the locals who live up here are almost tourists themselves of the area because everyone here enjoys the outdoors and right. It's funny. Uh, the, the 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 gentleman who uh, commissioned this camera, he's in uh, I believe Washington. I think. Um, uh -huh. So it's it's almost the silver kind of kind of kind of northern thing. Okay. Uh, sure, if... And um, uh, and the other oh, thing that, is, that that is Duluth, you're on the edge of uh, the North Shore, which is one of the most beautiful yes. parts of our country. Uh, I was just. Um, I was in uh, Minnesota um, last summer, and I did um, a day uh, on the North Shore, went all the way up to Grand Marais, um, yeah, and did uh, pinhole pictures the whole way up and the whole way back. So, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That was Minneapolis <sighs> Grand Marais one day. We hit, uh, I mean, and essentially every state park along the way. So. Beautiful, beautiful. D D Duluth is an area, and like the North Shore is is one of those places where the rest of Minnesota, yeah, you get the up north wilderness, like, yeah. and, and a lot of this is like agricultural, and a lot of it's flat or just trees. But once you get up to Duluth, it's you got big rocky cliff faces out to the yeah. so I mean big freshwater lake that you can't see across, uh, and then you have we have the Twin Ports, and then in Duluth too, one of our our biggest claims to fame is we have. A big lift bridge that was made in like the early 1900s, Absolutely. and it still runs today. And that's the only way you can get out onto Minnesota Point. But it's, I don't know. Everyone who lives in Duluth appreciates the city. No one's like living here, like ah, oh, Duluth sucks so much. I don't want to live in the city because a lot of people move to the city, and a lot of people who live here too have lived out in uh, West Coast. This is kind of like where you want to live if you don't want to live in a big city, but you kind of want to live in the West Coast vibe. A little bit is what I've heard. Sure. Sure, absolutely, and <laughs> and um, the leaves are about to change, and uh, yeah. So, oh, and actually, you're this, the Chrome. <laughs> well, and, and that's actually uh, with, with where I used to work um, at uh, for the bag manufacturers in town. Um, for anyone that doesn't know, Duluth Pack and Frost River, they make um, they're very heritage early 1900s wilderness kind of bags like made out of canvas leather brass buckles they're they're tried and true um there's a few of these bag patterns that they've they've made for over 100 years so the, the heritage that we have in duluth is is like the industry is around this whole bushcrafting and wilderness and stuff and that's why like this camera looks hilarious that it looks almost like a tackle box in my opinion yeah, <laughs> yeah. but yeah here, i'm gonna uh, that is the last photo of that set Okay. Pop That's great. There. I love that set. Yeah. Hey, Graham, um, is any of this online? 
uh, like as a photo set that people can see or just um, exclusive um, here? Uh, some of this stuff is posted on my Instagram. Uh, I've got a little array of things on my website itself at graphluxparts.com that will like some some I've got like a little cute slideshow of some of the cameras that I, I like I think that's shown in it. Just the, the the nice glamour shots, not the actual nitty-gritty, which is sure. what you guys get to see. Um but otherwise on my Instagram is where I post most of my like actual day-to-day things that I don't really feel are great advertisements for my old Facebook. <laughs> By the way, the links will be in the description below and we'll we'll do all of uh, Graham's contact info down there and at the end of the show specifically. Um, here, let me pull up, uh, all right, so this next set that I'm sharing here, uh, we're seeing the back of a ground glass, and this is just a coverage test, actually. Um, this is a Linhoff back, uh, Linhoff color cardam. So, um, the, the Linhoff monorail view camera, uh, usually you can find them on eBay with, like, crushed bellows. Um, mm -hmm. This is uh, the same back that you'll you'll see on the Technicas, so it's a little deceptive at first because you're like, oh my gosh, who would have ripped that off of Technica and like done that with it? Um, that's a blurry photo. This is uh, so I showed, um, I think I posted it in the group before. Um, I did, I had to mill down a back, uh, a Linhoff back, and and you mill off the entire faceplate of it, and you can carefully redrill the whole thing to to get back to mount up to the original wood back of a Kershaw camera like this. So this is a three by four Kershaw reflex. Um, it has a, it keeps a light seal every time that you're adjusting the curtain, as long as the mirror is down. So, so you're not going to burn a frame, which makes it super desirable. And it actually, once we, we stuck a four by five back on the three by four camera, we figured out it was making almost four by five. Exactly. It's just under, it's vignetting on one edge. Um, and that's just a symptom of, of where it was. And who cares? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And for the photographer who's shooting it, um, they use, because you're using uh, uh, like a, a, a modern graph lock back, mm -hmm. he actually like he has 120 holders, and he uh, most of the time he shoots. Um, I think, yeah, he shoots the four by five Polaroid film too, which is crazy to see uh, gorgeous color photos and stuff. Off of this, oh, I don't. I forgot to grab any of his, his pictures. Um, <laughs> he's I have bought and sold a lot of like Linhoff color cardens or other other cardens, and they are beautiful. They also never had a good bellows by the time I got to them. But yeah, uh, and that's why I think they made on like, like like that weird cream vinyl. I mean, they're they're so yeah. dated uh, to when they were made, but, but the bags are great. So yeah. so um, if if anyone can't see this, the uh, essentially a Linhoff back is like. Or they rotate in a really weird way. They've got these four little clips that kind of hold down this rotation ring, but the entire mechanism itself is very stout. When it comes right off of a color card amp, it has this big flange on the front because it's meant to do uh, back movements. So you could you could move the back a little bit itself and extend it. But when you're sticking on an SLR, you don't want those movements because you want the thing to be locked in a perfect frame the whole time. So you can mill off about three quarter of an inch from the back and cut the thing down to a working distance. And so, uh, which is something not normal on SLRs like this is, we managed to not have to raise the ground clap, or we, the, the ground glass got raised significantly, but we didn't have to move the hood at all. The, the hood got to stay right where it was. Um, so this is, there we go. Um, this is before I put stripes on it. This was technically the end of the build. Um, there wasn't much more to this other than using a milling machine to, to take off three quarter of an inch of aluminum from the back of it. And then the whole thing is you, you find out how to drill holes very sneaky. So uh, putting screw holes 
on the back are actually hidden underneath other things. Um, so it's really clever, but also I don't like making uh, camera modifications that you go on service. Because something like this, I'm this camera has come back in for uh, for service before to get the shutters adjusted. Uh, somehow a, a safety side of the camera went missing um, between me shipping it back to him and then him shipping it back to me. Um, and so there's, like, it, it came back, and, and when you, you're going to have to work on a camera again, it's best if the whole thing hasn't been JB welded together. Um, and you don't have to sit and break glue. It's like, just take it apart the way it was meant to be taken apart. Um, oh, and, and this was, uh, if, if this photo's coming up, this is uh, <laughs> the, the only Linhoff Kershaw you will ever see. <laughs> I, I was more of a to do that, because... Graham stole the badge off the uh, Linhoff and mounted it to the Kershaw. Very, very and slick, it, it melts perfect, in a perfect looking job. spot. Yeah, it looks like factory. Uh, so, so next, what I'm showing here is a little bit more um, behind the scenes that I didn't. I wasn't posting photos this a long time ago, but uh, it was almost an afterthought because we we got the we put the back on. I started going through film tests, and you, there is silicon sealant to cover up a, a certain gap that exists but the whole camera can still come apart without having to break the silicon sealant um but what we discovered is the back was making a really funny vignette so we go through the platform. i i went through and i cut and stamped and fabricated a set of uh frame lines i guess you could call it that cut that shaped the whole thing down to an actual square did some more hidden screws and this is this is something where i did this long enough that i would consider this to be crude for my own work and I would, and I, I'm doing a, I have another one of these in my queue right now that I'm making a, a sister to this camera. And my strategy at this point is instead of doing, this is a four part little masking system that I did, the next camera I'm doing is going to be just a mask plate that, that's been CNC'd out to the exact dimension. So then way I don't have to play with this. And also the whole thing can hurt a lot easier. Um, and this is, there we go. Uh, that's the glamor shot. So uh, the client who commissioned this one, um, you know, everyone's got their, their childhood uh, fantasies and wants. And, and so, uh, you know, growing up with like the Fast and the Furious, everyone wants to have a, a fast race car that's got like some cool like racing stripes and like riced out. And so uh, with this, especially, he's a shooter. He, he does like fine art photography, wedding photography with this rig. This camera has shot a lot of awesome, really cool things. And he wanted his own little hot rod and so he asked he's like can you put some racing stripes on it and we we deliberated about the positioning of the stripes and the color and he ended up picking a this is vinyl sticker uh you could like like vinyl through like a sticker cutter um and we cut a big big lime green uh, racing stripe across the camera which is also okay. something that most people do not like he's like why would you do that and it's like also i mean the camera it's still being shot this late in its life yeah, it should be orange. That's the reason why. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the the sister of it that I've got in my queue is not going to get a green stripe on it, but oh. it's going to be the same system. Um, it's it's the cute little, which is, uh, these cameras are great there. And so this is the Kershaw system where the mirror mechanism in it, uh, the lens sits behind the tip of the mirror. And when the mirror triggers, it pulls it back in a convex arc and it pulls the, the, the leading edge of the mirror that's flipping up, it pulls it back in an arc around the rear of the, the lens and up to the front. So you can put some freakishly short lenses on this camera. Still not super tiny, but it is short. Um, that's wild. Yeah, that's a fun one. Uh, kind of on the same topic with that is, um, let me 
pop over to my other. I've got another folder here. And let's see if I can make screen sharing. I'm going to start a new presentation and pop over to this guy. Oh, there we go. Oh, there we go. Okay. So this is a uh, kind of similar thing. This is um, back when you could get uh, so that's a, a Lomo Bel Air instant back um, ripped off of the like the Bel Air camera. And this is when uh, you could still get them for under six hundred dollars. And before uh, Lomo Insta Wide or the the Lomograph Lom 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 Lock, whatever they're calling this thing now, uh, before that was even even an issue. Um, so what we've got here is a uh, it's a three by four Thornton and Pickard um, with some laser cut uh, Baltic uh, Baltic birch plywood that's been stained, and this whole thing's been. I'm really proud of this one because this camera came together really nicely with like a perfect adapter plate out of something that can be removed. And especially a Beller back, they're really obtuse to try and modify. So this whole camera, there's, it's like, how do you put something together where you can't see any of the screws that are holding the whole thing together and you can't access the screws from other, either directions. So this camera comes apart by the, uh, the back comes off in a really specific way. And then the Beller back has hidden screws going from inside the inside the Beller to into the back. So it's it's kind of like inception of mounting a back on something. Um, these cameras are super cute though, but they are flawed by design. Um, I like Thornton's. Uh, they were a clever idea, but this is I think I think Nick was talking about it before doing a small mirror inside of a, a reflex camera, and that's what Thornton's decided to do to overcome that, uh, the short flange distance reel that they were trying to do, they made a very tiny mirror and the mirror flips up and the way to occlude the gap that goes around the mirror, because the mirror is too small to see, they just have a big piece of floppy felt that sits underneath it. And so it's that felt that's relying on a light seal for the entire viewing hood. So Thornton Pickard cameras by design have a light leak from the viewing hood, um, along with another other eight light leaks. And the camera only go. The camera's a one-way street, so uh, if you, uh, yeah, I I can feel for him because I generally the cameras I build are generally um, you know uh, have eight light leaks as well in the design. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and this was also a time where uh, I mean it, it, this is years ago when something could still be considered high end and have these hurdles that were commonplace hurdles. Now you have a camera right. that has a, a rogue light leak, and compared to where modern manufacturing go, is going, like it's unacceptable that a camera can have that leak. But something like this, there's, especially um, now. Now what's happened is, and I guess I'll stop my screen sharing here and pop back on camera. And this is gonna be a little blurry, but this is the, the Thornton Pickard that I showed, showed before. Um, what's going on in here is there. I have developed about 17 different new parts for this camera because there's. The way the mirror works in the camera, it's relying on a cloth hinge to make sure that there's a light seal instead of actually creating a a mirror box and tray that seat and create a physical light seal like door trap. Mm -hmm. um, this is relying on just a piece of cloth to just kind of fill the space. 
and it never works. And also every time that you have to service the shutter out of Thornton Picker camera, it has to come out of the camera, which it does, it's modular, but it's glued to the, to the, the hunk of fabric in there. So part of what I've done to, to this camera system is trying to update all of these different things. I mean, you, you end up causing certain handicaps the camera has, like to defeat the cloth hinge, I created a metal hinge that just stays in the camera and never gets removed. But that also cuts off your view through the through the, view, the viewfinder. You kind of get a little bit of a vignette on the bottom. But the alternative of burning at this point, I mean, uh, this camera was intended initially for doing uh, like Fuji instant film. But when you're burning $60 boxes of film, like you can't really afford to have like one frame that got super screwed up. Or when you're shooting a wedding or something, you can't afford every three out of 10 frames to be totally screwed up and waiting for for something specific to happen. But even with with uh, like the Thorntons, they, they are a one-way street. You wind the camera, uh, the shutter speeds start at the fastest and go to the slowest. So you wind going past the fastest speed, one thousandth down to one tenth. If you wind too far, you have to fire the camera to reset the tension to go back. So you can't just consistently adjust the speed. A Graflex, because uh, there's no light seal in this camera, you're gonna have to have dark slide in the whole time every time you want to trigger it to set the speed again. But on a Graflex, you have that whole mirror box that stays together. Um, so it's, this is why like, like Thorntons are a very cool design. They do some things, but they're, they're so heavily flawed at this point that it's one of those things where you work out enough and you take it apart a few hundred times and you learn how they really should be working. But it's like, I don't ever want to touch one. <laughs> Do you want to build one from scratch, though? <laughs> and this is where it's at. Yeah, this is this is what, what it guts to is is I love some of the parts. Of the, the Thornton Pickard shutter curtain design is awesome. It actually is incredibly reliable when it's working right. Um, but it's the hurdle of they weren't allowed to use the mirror box that Kershaw was using, so they had to get a different system around that, and they handicapped themselves at the same time doing that. They created a camera that just has umpteenth amount of flaws, but hey, we used our own patent of this, and then. Uh, the whole history of it goes that in like the mid 1930s, all, all of these companies got bought up by the same entity, and you have an amalgamation of uh, four or five different. I forgot what they're called offhand. It's it, AA and something. Um, but they're all re-centralized all of their camera patents together, and you get some weird cameras that existed for like two years. Um, and they are bizarre. It's it's like a Franken camera of all of these cameras that existed before. Um, I don't know. You even see it, start to see it in cameras from the 1920s that these companies were stealing. Like uh, apparently the the patent for their hood designs uh, went up in 1915 because everyone started using the exact same hood design in 1915. Um, I don't know. And that's where we're we're at a point where I think uh, intellectual property and, and being protective of, of your own designs and stuff is, is valid and important, but we're at a, a time where we can start finally using technologies and putting these things together that no one was ever legally allowed to uh, do in 1940. Yeah, no. <laughs> and even Graflex. Um, Graflex is notorious. Uh, their first shutter curtain design is stolen from somebody else, but they only did got away with it for about two years before they changed to a different system. So it was like, we'll do it. We'll still start selling it until we end up in some sort of legal ramifications with someone else. Um, and and also when you get to that whole history, you end up with uh, like William Fulmer was a shark when it came to patents. He was buying up everybody left and right. He he essentially put an end to most of his competition in the US. Um, it's a little wild, like the different companies that he just stamped out effectively by uh, 1920, just because he's like, I'm, I'm, 
I want your, it's like, I like, like your mirror system. I'm going to take your mirror system. I like your curtain system. Like the long roll shutter curtain that Graflex has is not Graflex's design. That is someone else's design from the 1890s. Um, but Graflex also was the same, the same company that left the patent dates on their camera 30 years past when the patents expired. So. <laughs> Uh, Graham, is there anybody that you would like to give a shout out to? Anybody who's been, um, you know, particularly important in the development of uh, of where you're at now with camera stuff or other life stuff? Uh, anybody you want to give a shout out to? Uh, yeah, there's actually, um, I guess predominantly is one of the things when, like, first customers I ever had. Uh, there's a gentleman named Tuan B of Tuan B and Company uh, Photography in Chicago. Dude is solid, shoots some insane gear, but also has the most unconventional, conventional art opinions ever. I, But he's always like the one, like I'll message him with like, I have this dumb idea for this. And yeah, yeah, I'll support that. Um, but I got a couple cameras for him that let me kind of do some, you know, like uh, someone who actually like, will own up to taking the risk of like, hey, you can you can mess with this, like fix it for me. Um, that was huge. Uh, he That definitely gave me a log up. He's always also always been like the biggest proponent for uh, like advertising and, and dropping my name here and there. Um, other people that I'm really fans of right now uh, in the whole maker community, Ross Burley, uh, Burley Camera Company, that dude rocks. And I also love that there's, he's given me some tips. I've, I've reached out to him before for woodworking. And I mean, the guy's, running his own little operation. So he's got all the secrets that he needs to keep for himself. Um, but he is doing some seriously good, really nice woodworking. Um, and then I guess what what really helped me um, in everything that I've been doing is is the communities that exist, uh, like Graflex Camera Community, or Graflex Camera Group, the one that we have on Facebook. Uh, there's a few different gentlemen in there, uh, like Thomas Evans, Ken Huff, uh, that there are people that knew what these industry things were. They have all this information from years ago. And, and uh, Ken Huff, actually, he's Deardoff's historian. Um, and he's worked at the factory for a, a while. Um, and there's a whole other history that goes into that. But he is one of those guys that you can reach out to about anything. And he's got whatever the old timer repair tech idea was from 50 years ago. Um, and they're not, there are, he's not necessarily the guy that you can like reach out to, but, but there's, it's, I appreciate that there's like old timers like that <laughs> around. Um, okay. I don't know. I guess I also appreciate my wife because uh, for the past, uh, the whole first couple of years of this working, uh, we live in a 750 square foot apartment and um, about a third of that apartment was my shop for a long time until we could get a, an actual space that I have down here. Um, sure. <laughs> she's appreciative because now she's uh, with, with the things right now, she's distance teaching. She's a high school English teacher. Um, so she's upstairs in the right class now. right now. Um, yeah. I hate Zoom. I love Zoom. I hate Zoom. Yeah, yeah. that's where I'm at with with, with uh, teaching via distance. So, all right. Um, let's see. We don't have any books this week. Ethan, do you want to say any shout-outs, anything? Uh, 
No, I, I just want to know all of the places that people can find Graham because okay. he runs probably the second uh, biggest Facebook group about making or or the I I don't want to say second biggest it's probably larger than our group but like there's only two of them <laughs> about making uh, Frankenstein cameras on on Facebook and you have Graphlex parts and you have Graphlex user groups and there's about a million ways to find you on the internet Graham. Um, what what are all of those ways? Um, so uh, first, uh, my website aptly at www.graphlexparts.com. Um, that's just my main front to everything. You're going to find contact information, links to my Facebook, links to my Instagram, my uh, contact email address and all that stuff. Um, the easiest way to get in contact with me is directly through Facebook because I do most of my stuff on Facebook. I admin uh, specifically, there's Graphlex Camera Group. We're just at over, I think, 3,100 users right now. Um, we try and centralize away from sales posts, away from appraisal stuff. We have, I mean, there's hundreds of years of knowledge in that group of, of people who have been doing and been helping people uh, and used to know the older pair text from 30 years ago. Uh, on top of Graphlex Camera Group, I also run Dr. Frankenstein's Camera, Camera Club, which is <sighs> things that don't really fit into Graphlex Camera Group. I mean, other, other large format reflex cameras, but it also, I like the whole idea that most of what we centralize and post in the group is about uh, large format cameras, weird antique stuff, um, really funky lenses and things. But I like keeping it open. It's an open door for people who are on the entry level. The per person who just got their first Helios lens and they're they're getting the first mirrorless adapter set up. It's a little weird to know how far that can extend for yourself, which I love. I shoot a Sony A7 uh, and I shoot a Micro Nikkor 5528. Um, I love digital with passion too for all my normal stuff, product photography. But at the same time, you have a tool for each, each specific thing. And that's why Dr. Frankenstein's Camera Club is like the end all of this for me is because. I, well, I wanted to point out that Dr. Frankenstein's Camera Club is like the closest Facebook group to the Homemade Camera uh, podcast Facebook group in terms of like people sharing nutty stuff that they're doing with cameras. And I mean that like in in the best, most interesting ways. I, I lurk there quite a bit. Good. I have to jump out. I'm sorry. Uh, I have to jump out. Uh, um, I have a FaceTime with my mother. She's at the okay. uh, at the doctor. Um, so um, I'll, I'll wrap it up, Graham. Great talking, great talking with you. But I'm <laughs> still good talking with you. Going to jump off. So yeah, we went we went easily <laughs> another hour past where we thought we could maximally go. But yeah, we're gonna have to do um, another one of these. Ethan, uh, talk we'll... about the Ethan. Do the um uh the I'll make camera uh, zine. Yeah, the the zine. Okay, I'll do talk it to you later. Bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> All right, uh, Graham, I uh, rudely interrupted you because I'm such a fan of Dr. Frankenstein's camera group. Where else can people find you? Um, my Instagram is, uh, uh, my Instagram handle is graphlex underscore parts. For some reason, graphlex parts is one word was taken when I tried to do it. Uh, my Instagram is, I, I post on my story all the time. Um, that's where you can really see kind of, there's legitimacy when you can see a maker at work making their stuff uh doing stuff so that's why i love posting more nonsense there that's a little bit more topical um i keep more things uh announcement related on my facebook page which is uh, facebook.com slash graphlex parts all one word um and that's where you'll usually see announcements of if i'm coming out with a back if i'm releasing a batch of rangefinder cams some odd parts every now and then i have some random assortment old stock parts for sale i usually try and centralize on new production organic new things so we don't have to keep tantalizing old cameras. Um, 
Otherwise, my email address is grandflexparts at gmail.com too. Um, and these are all great avenues to reach out to me. I don't get back to my email nearly as much as I should because it's mostly just tech support questions. Um, but you if I'm not getting that I, router from 10 feet of snow. Yeah, yeah, right. No, but uh, the, the thing is, I never, I'm, if I'm not getting back to you, reach out to me more. I, I always love to help. I'm just inundated with tech support all day as trying to run my own shop. But um, well, those are about, I think, all the places. Thank you very much, Graham. I'm going to do a quick uh, list of things before Graham needed to uh, needed to run, which is that the homemade camera podcast zine number two. Graham's putting that together, and it is uh, the deadline has been extended. I'm not sure for how long, but uh, probably another month. We've already gotten some excellent submissions, and they're still rolling in so graham is uh at, at least a month i think he's gonna extend the uh, submissions if you have a camera to submit um submit a picture or pictures of the camera with the camera of your drawings of your process uh and a little bit of a blurb about you know what the camera is why you made it uh what the process was like and what it's like to shoot with um, and you can send those submissions with pictures attached to HMC Zine 2020. That's HMC Zine 2020 at gmail.com. Um, Graham Young, how can people find you? Yeah, um, I'm on Instagram as uh, Graham Homemade Camera. I'm on Flickr as uh, fro uh, Freezer of Photons, all one word, all jammed together. And uh, and have we talked how to get a hold of Nick? Uh, no, you tell him. Okay, so Nick is Avi Nick A V Y N I C K on Instagram. He's Nick Lyle on uh, on uh, Flickr. That other one, the Flickr thing. Yeah, absolutely. We want to thank Robbie Cribs. Robbie Cribs. He is the one who uh, did our music, he, he created our music, he played our music, and he allows us to use it every week. And so thank you very much, Robbie. Thanks, Robbie.
where I was from, uh, it depend on if enough kids could get picked on by the bus in town, the plows could get out early enough. Like, yeah, you'd have school, but usually it was like only like two hour late start. The only time school would actually be called is if we had, uh, I think one year we had two days of negative 35, uh, yeah. where tiles were actually popping off the walls in the school because something went wrong. Like uh -huh. whole school was freezing. And then uh, the other time I remember having like a significant amount of time off was we had three fog days in a row because some for oh. some weird reason it was foggy for three days straight and like yeah. two dangerous to drive. 